This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. for you this Independence Day. Are you proud to be an American? Now, before you answer that, I want you to be prepared to answer the second question. How proud are you to be an American? Very interesting polling data coming out from Gallup that indicate that patriotism, at least extreme patriotism, might be a little bit on the run. The share of people who say they are extremely proud, that's a quote, extremely proud to be an American has been falling for years. That's according to new Gallup Gallup data. Less than 500 days from an election likely to feature a rematch in 2020 that very few Americans seem to want, extreme national pride is near a historic low. Now, the greatest demographic differentiator for expressions of national pride is party identification, not surprisingly. Overall, only 39% of Americans say they are extremely proud to be an American. That's essentially unchanged from the low of last year, which was 38%. Now, it's not all that bad. I'm going to give you some silver linings to look at in a minute. But there are a couple of things in here that I think are worth noting in this poll. One, what group do you think is more likely to be, in terms of political identification, most proud to be an American? Well, a majority of Republicans still claim extreme national pride, but the share has fallen from a near universal 86% 20 years ago when patriotism peaked In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, the last time a majority of Democrats said they were extremely proud to be an American was in 2013, months into President Obama's second term. So let me give you the numbers here in terms of who's extremely proud to be an American. You have 67 percent of so you have 38 percent overall who say they are extremely proud to be an American. 60% of Republicans say they are extremely proud to be an American. 33% of independents say they are extremely proud to be an American. And only 29% of Democrats say they are extremely proud to be an American. And first of all, if I'm answering this question and I'm an independent, I am... Answering it as, yes, I am extremely proud to be an American, 100%, absolutely. But my broader question for you is, why? how do you think we get this number to be more reflective of where Republicans are across the board? How do you think we get the majority of independents and Democrats to answer the question, 
yes, I am extremely proud to be an American. The one caveat that I want you to keep in mind with your answer is please don't have it be dependent on electoral outcomes. Don't sit here and say, well, if only we would elect more Democrats, then more Democrats would say they'd be extremely proud to be an American. If only we'd elect more Republicans, then they'd pursue more patriotic policies and they would say and they would be extremely proud to be an American. Aside from the political outcome, what can we do? And when I say we, I mean everybody as a country, whether we're talking the media, whether we're talking education, whether we're talking parents, whether we're talking individual Americans, voters, volunteers, churches, institutions, anybody. What can we collectively do to essentially ramp up national pride and patriotism? 800-848-9222. The one thing I'm not going to volunteer for is the thing that made us see the record high in this number, and that is a terrorist attack. Because the highest we've ever seen was 86% in the aftermath of September 11th. And I don't think we want to have a situation like that just for the sake of national pride. Is there anything that we can do, for instance, to increase extreme pride in the country across the board that doesn't involve being attacked in a 9-11 or Pearl Harbor style attack? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I would answer the question, yes, I am extremely proud because I just love, even with all of its faults, American freedom. Uh, the ability to go into a town square and say whatever you want is something that people in China, in Venezuela, in places like Ukraine would be, and Russia would be, literally dying for right now and that's why this is one of the few places in the world that people literally die trying to get into so uh, i would answer yes now here's the silver lining of this if you take into account people who say they're extremely proud or moderately proud then it's a much higher number There's a combined 67% of adults who say they're either extremely proud or very proud to be an American. Now, there are another 22% of adults who say they are, um, you know, moderately proud. 7% say only a little and 4% say not at all. So when you have 11% saying only a little or not at all... That does still bode pretty well for the level of American pride. But wouldn't it be nice to get to a point where, irrespective of party, everybody was extremely proud to be an American? My question for you is, how do we get there? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Got an action-packed Independence Day show for you here today. Got some patriotic music we're going to play. We have some patriotic clips we're going to play. We have some fun stories from throughout American history that I'm going to share with you. And uh, we're going to talk in just about 15 minutes with Liz Keller, the founder of a chapter of Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers. This is a great group that I'm very impressed with that connects 
rescue dogs with soldiers. We're going to get into that. Next hour, we're going to talk with Colonel Eric Buer, author of The Ghosts of Baghdad, all about the Iraq War and his experience there. And then in our third hour, we are going to go live to Scotland, where it's a much more reasonable time, and check in with a gentleman who has been hunting for the Loch Ness Monster for over 30 years. He hasn't found him yet. Does that mean he doesn't exist? We'll get into that and a whole lot more. 800-848-9222, What can we do that would increase national pride and national patriotism? Tell me. 800-848-9222. I also want to welcome our newest listeners on WWNR, WWNR. In Beckley, West Virginia, they are now carrying our show as of this week. I am honored to be on in West Virginia. Your senator, Joe Manchin, is one of my favorite senators. I appreciate the fact that he's kind of an independent voice, marches to his own drummer. And uh, I am thrilled that we're going to be on in West Virginia when we're going to be able to comment on such an action-packed Senate race come next year because with Jim Justice running... With Joe Manchin possibly running, we don't know what's going to happen. So it's interesting to be on in a state like that. And you know what? And I I would bet even a lot of listeners in West Virginia don't know the little factoid I'm about to share with you. Do you know why the station is called WWNR? It's named for WW Nick Rahal, who was the father of the original owners. Isn't that cool? They they still. The station was founded in 1946, and they still have the initials of the original owner's father in their call letters. I love it. I think that is absolutely great, and it's great to be on such a historic station. 800-848-9222. Paul in Connecticut. What do we do to increase national pride, Paul? Frank, I'd like to say to increase national pride would be to get Young people jobs, get the disabled people working more, have more community involvement. Okay, and and how do you think we do that necessarily? Let's say we made you our our czar of national uh, pride, right? What would you do? Um, what what? It could be one thing, it could be a dozen things to make those that kind of aspirational goals that you just outlined come to fruition. I'd pick up every disabled person three times a week and bring them to a job and have them work for the day and at least make sure they got a day's pay at the end of the day. All right, so it's, day's work. It's, it's a jobs program. Make make uh, make sure that everybody that is capable of working is in a position to work. Yeah, that they don't leave people behind and left out. All right, sort of like the New Deal almost. Yep. All right, thank and you. Just like, okay, thank you. No, no, no go ahead. What were we going to say, Paul? What were we going to say? No, I feel, you know, I've always felt patriotic. I tried to join the Army first, but I had a hearing loss. Then I uh, joined the Navy, and then the hearing loss again caught up with me. They disqualified me for my job. Oh, boy. My dad worked for the, you know, did some heavy anti-narcotics work for the probably a CIA down in South America for many years. So, well, Paul, I uh, I know. appreciate your patriotism. I'm sorry about your hearing loss and, and the setbacks that it's dealt you. Yeah, I'm glad you're listening to us. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Chris on Long Island. Chris, what are you doing to increase national patriotism if it's up to you? 
Hey, Frank, I, I think it's a lost cause, but I think the only way to fix this is to send these people that hate the country to a third world country and uh, to really see how great our country is. There's no way to fix it. Everyone hates everything. They hate the Constitution. So, so you just thrown in the towel. There's nothing that can be done. Nothing can be done. Lost cause at this point. Yeah, I don't agree. I don't agree. I don't think that people that answer that they that they first of all, no one is saying only 11 percent of the country is basically saying they're not proud of the country. You have thirty-three uh, percent of independents, twenty-nine percent of Democrats. They say they're extremely proud to be an American. How do you get that number to seventy percent? Irrespective, forget about electoral outcomes. What can be done? Is it mandatory national service? I think maybe that's part of the answer. Is it increasing civic civic education? I think maybe that's part of the answer. But um, I don't know honestly, and I would love to hear what ideas you have. For us, 800-848-9222, Warren is listening in Deposit, New York. Hello there, Warren. Thank you for taking my call. Are you listening to us on uh, WLVL, Warren? uh, No, I'm listening right from ABC, right out of New York. Okay, well, great. We're happy to have you wherever you're listening. Thank you. Um, I listen every night. Wonderful. Great. I'm, extre- I'm, I'm extremely proud to be an American. After all, my family has fought in every war this country has ever fought, including the Revolutionary War. And I have a musket that sits on my chimney because that my great great grandfather, Edward Warren Bush, uh, fought in the Revolutionary War with. And it gets passed down to the first grandson of every generation. Wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> So, Warren, now, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know how far it went back. But when these people come here and I'm not against immigration, please don't think that. Sure. But when they take the oath. But yet they say they got dual citizenship. In my opinion, when you take the oath, you drop your citizenship and you are an American now, and you honor America all the way. Warren, I like this idea because I actually have had the I, I'm uh, able to be dual citizen of uh, of Italy and I have friends that are dual citizens of Italy as as well. I know some people are dual citizens of Israel. I have a close friend that's a dual citizen in Ireland. And I always feel like, you know, you got to fly one flag, not keep a foot in each country. And uh, I actually like that idea. I'm not sure that that would do much to increase the poll numbers, but I like your idea anyway. 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Manorville. Hello, Jeff. Hey, what's going on, buddy? Long time no talk. (laughs) I'm doing just fine. Thanks, Jeff. I think, to be honest with you, bring back the nuclear family, bring back the blue war. I don't know. Do you, you remember the Blue War? Well, no alcohol sales on Sunday and so forth? No stores open on Sundays. Right. Everybody goes to church on Sundays. And after church, everybody goes to the beach. It's family. It's all about the family. And our government is trying to break up the nuclear family. That would make the family and everybody, it makes everybody an American. It makes everybody like, you know, family is what, 
makes this country. I think this is an interesting life. concept, uh, Jeff. Now, obviously, you can't force people to go to church, but you can do what, say, they do in Paramus, New Jersey, and have all the stores be closed on Sunday and create the opportunity for more family time there. And I think that exactly. is a pretty interesting proposition. Um, so you think if more people... if families spent more time with one another, that would lead to greater civic participation, greater civic involvement, and greater civic pride. Exactly. You know, exactly. I, I, I don't think that's a bad suggestion, actually, Jeff. 800-848-9222. Igor in New Jersey, happy Independence Day. Yes, greetings, Frank. Uh, so my, my view on, on your question is to, to really, and this is one of the reasons that I feel uh, very proud to be an American, is that I'm not that far removed from people who scratched and clawed to get here. And I think if you remind people that their people, almost everybody, came from somewhere else, and they came here for an opportunity that uniquely is available here in the United States. And, and I think that that, uh, that should make people feel better. And I think people who are here for a long time forget about how privileged they are to, to grow up in this country. So I think you're right. I think you're right, and I, and I agree with everything you said. So how do we do that? How do we remind people that may have grown up here, been born here, that they're still pretty lucky to be here? How does that message get conveyed to someone that's 40, 50 years old and doesn't know anything but American life and American freedom? How do we kind of shake them out on the, on the, by the shoulders and say, hey, you're pretty lucky to have the opportunity Opportunity to be born in a place where people are literally dying to try to get to. How do you do that? I think what that is, Frank, is it's it's kind of like if you interview people who are coming to this country and scratching and clawing, and then remind them that um, people are always people, and and it may be removed by fifty years or a hundred years or one hundred and fifty years, but seeing and hearing the stories of people who are still clamoring to get to the United States, and I know there's a lot of controversy about those coming here illegally and those who still come here legally, but hearing those stories should reinforce with people that it's the, the people come here for the same reason. All right. Thank you, Igor. I appreciate that. 800-848-9222. John is in Wanakiu. Hello, John. Hello. So, John, Hello. give me your give me your take. How do we uh, instill civic pride across the board and get to the point where everybody's extremely proud to be an American? I think it's got to start at home and it's got to start in the classroom. And when I say at home, hometown participation, I think more people need to be involved uh, and take pride in the local level, board of education, town council, mayor, to start doing things to take pride in their own hometown, because I think without that, it's going to be hard to go from the top down. All right. So let's say you're the school superintendent or the chancellor. What are your what are you doing in your school district to increase civic pride? Get the kids more get, get town council members, board of ed members, mayors, get them more involved in school activities and local history lessons, history of the town, history of the state and make it more part of the conversation. So. You know, people have pride in where they live. You know, John, starts in our own I, I think Go that's ahead. a great point. I, I think it's a great point. And one of the things that we have seen go by the wayside really over the last 25, 30 years 
is a complete decline in civics education. Now, when I went to school, I don't know if they still do this in New York City, but when I went to school, you had to take a course called Participation in Government, and you couldn't graduate unless you got three what they call P credits or Participation in Government credits where you did something that indicated some sense of participation in government. I never hear about that anymore. If they still do that where where I grew up, I have no idea. I certainly don't hear about it. I, I think that you've seen a total reorientation of education towards things that they can test. And I'm not going to blame just No Child Left Behind or Common Core or any of these education initiatives, but they teach math, they teach science, they teach a little bit of history, a little bit of history, but they don't really teach civics in a meaningful way that people can understand it. What John just alluded to uh, of local history, when I was in the fourth grade, I took a class totally separate from American history and global history. I took a class just on the history of my state, and I thought it was wonderful. And yet for decades, I've asked young people, hey, what are you learning about New York history? Nothing, nothing. They don't teach New York history anymore. I don't know if they teach New Jersey history, but they should. But they're not going to give a test, a standardized test for New Jersey history and New York history that they can then use on college entrance exams. So I think local history and local civic education is just as important. Johnny, listening on WCBM in Baltimore, pretty wild over there, uh, Johnny. You're not that mass shooting suspect that's on the loose, are you? No, not at all. Good, good, good. Great to hear it. Uh, All right. I would just like to touch on a couple of things. My ancestors came from Polish, Italian, German, and Irish. World War One, Two, Korea. I was served during Vietnam. My cousin served in Nam. When you're having immigrants, first off, if they don't have the modicum to speak English, they should not be naturalized. Number two, the other caller put up about dual citizenship. I am completely against it. You serve one master. I think Jesus said that. Number three, they do not teach civics. When I was in Baltimore Polytechnic Institute, used to be one of the finest science and engineering high schools in the nation, sir. I had civics. You had the federal government constitution. I still got a pocket constitution. That's great. I have, I've got one too. I'm with you on that one, Johnny. 800-848-9222. As far as immigration though, it, the people that go through the legal channels to be here and take a citizenship test and in some cases spend a lot of money trying to become an American citizen, I find them to be incredibly patriotic. And that's one of the reasons when we did their, our segment on should you have to be a, born in this country to be president, I don't think you should. I think if you are able to actually take a test and prove your knowledge of civic education, I think you should have the same rights as any other American. 800 to to Peter is in New Jersey. Hello, Peter. Hey. Uh, well, I was going to talk about something else, but I, I listening while I was on hold, uh, civics is something that's not taught anymore. Right. Uh, no, that's what I'm saying. Uh, so, do you think that's the solution, exactly. Peter? I was in ninth grade, and I had a half 
one semester of Mr. Golden, I remember his name, teaching civics. And we learned how government worked. And that has guided me since then. Yeah, uh, Peter, I'm with you. That is totally lacking. And that's something that should be absolutely a nonpartisan issue as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-9222. John is in Long Island. Hello, John. Hello, how are you? Good morning. Morning. Uh, some of the people have, have stolen my thunder, but I, I would agree completely with the issue of civics education. There's an awful lot of uh, demagoguery going on in this country. Uh, like people don't understand and appreciate the the uh, the historical and, and legitimate basis of why we have an electoral college. There, there was right. an intense. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking for really a non-electoral. Uh, you know, situation here. And look, I, I think the electoral college, you can be all for getting rid of it and still be extremely proud to be an American. I, I think that's getting a little into the weeds. Uh, Joe in Rockland County, we'll give you the last word here. Joe. All right. Look, David in Staten Island, it's your lucky day. Hello, David. Uh, howdy. Uh, I've been doing genealogy. My family tree goes back 400 years with the Mayflower and New Amsterdam. And my pride in America is that you should know American history. Civics is 100% necessity. Speaking English to keep the country united, we must be able to have a common language. If you defeat that purpose, you can't go from here to Texas to communicate. What happened when Mao took over China, he did one thing right, United China. Now look where it is today. It's a threat to us. Yeah, that's, that's a fair. A that's, a fa that's a fair point, David. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to continue to weigh in on this, you can. We're going to talk with Liz Keller in just a moment. I'll tell you though, what I'm really looking for is new solutions, not for ten more people to repeat my suggestion of increasing civic education. If you have new solutions that people haven't mentioned, that's what I'm particularly interested in. I'm also particularly interested in the work to. Uh, uh, the the work that Liz Keller is doing. She is a dog person that is helping a lot of American heroes connect with rescue door, dogs, which I think is phenomenal. We'll get into it in a big way. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. Uno. He's your numero uno.
It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. talk more about uh, some other great patriotic music a little bit later on. But I'll tell you, if you look throughout the history of America, so often the history of America, it seems like it chronicles different American wars. And through a lot of those wars, America happens to be on the right side uh, historically. I mean, I know there's debate on every issue, but if you look at the Revolutionary War, if you look at the Civil War, if you look at World War II, America has a pretty strong claim to the moral high ground. And you always hear about so many of the war heroes that helped do so many great things in those conflicts. However, there's one group of folks that often get ignored when you look at those conflicts and the real true war heroics, and that is dogs. And dogs have not only played a pivotal role in wars, but they've played a pivotal role in helping warriors readjust to life after they come home. And that's one of the reasons I was uh, so eager to chat with Liz Keller. She is founder of a chapter of Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers, a phenomenal group. And on Independence Day, I can't think of a better group with a better mission that I would want to talk about and learn about than Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers. Liz Keller, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh, hi, thank you for inviting me. So, Liz, uh, tell folks about uh, about what you do. I-, I love Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers, because you're really helping three different groups, all of whom need a significant amount of help. Tell people who you're helping and what you do. Right. Um well, we've always worked with New York City Animal Care and Control as a new hope partner, and we were always seeing, like, young mixed breeds, um, you know, go, getting surrendered about a year, year and a half, because they were too hyper or, you know, the owners couldn't really control them. And at the same time, we sort of um, started, I started hearing more and more about the need for veterans coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan with the PTSD and they were having a lot of issues adjusting and um, I watched a show um, that Oprah Winfrey had on with Tom Brokaw and just talking about how people in his own town needed help and he wasn't even aware of it so that sort of got the wheels turning and um, we put this organization together and it's been the most amazing um, time. We name our dogs once they're trained in honor of veterans who died in combat. 
we get the family's permission, and they have been so happy um, to be part of that. Um, we have a, a dogs that um, the the families just love that their 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 son or daughter's name is being used to help other veterans, and we match these dogs with the veterans. And I did not realize what an amazing bond um, would take place. Um, the veterans sometimes are kind of stoic. They're not that talkative, you know, because they don't want to let on that they really have serious issues. They're very strong individuals. And um, the dogs just bring in such a softer side. And once they're placed, we received a letter recently from a veteran that we placed a dog with. And um, he clearly stated that without his dog, he wouldn't be here today. And that besides saving a dog, we saved his life. And it was really amazing to hear that. So just help folks understand exactly what Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers does. So you connect a dog with a returning veteran who may have an issue related to PTSD or some other issue. But um, where are these dogs coming from? Where are you getting the rescue dogs in the first place? Right. They're coming mostly from New York City Animal Care and Control, which has a high surrender rate. And um, some of the so dogs, these are, are dogs you know, are in taken, shelters. Right. Right. Shelter dogs. Yes. And then you the, the dogs are actually trained. And this is part of the unique story of what you guys do. By whom? Uh, by myself and some of our staff. We usually start out with basic obedience. And we'll visit, we get referrals from the VA in the Bronx or in Albany and once or, you know, the veterans hear about what we do. And then we meet with them. We do a needs assessment in the home to make sure everybody's on board or if he's if the veteran lives alone, you know, that we're not going to, like, add more stress to their lives. We want to make sure it's a good match. And then we usually have the dogs. They come and they meet them and the dogs pretty much select their a veteran. It's kind of wild. Um, we had one dog that um, was with a veteran named Gavin, and he came and we were meeting in a big room, and all the dogs came in, and he, there was just not a connection. And then this one dog, Evie, came in, went right over and laid at his feet, and he's like, "This is the dog." And they became an amazing team, and uh, that dog helped him so much. He suffered from night tremors. Um, he also had seizures. And she was trained to be by his side at all times and to alert his wife if he had a seizure and she wasn't in the room with him. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Liz Keller. She works with Rescue Dogs, Rescue Soldiers. If you want to learn more about their group, maybe even make a donation, you can go to RescueDogsRescueSoldiers.org. That's RescueDogsRescueSoldiers.org. And Liz, for people that might be thinking, okay, this sounds great, uh, connecting a dog that needs to be rescued with a veteran that needs some help, explain to folks exactly how injured veterans, whether they're coming back from Iraq or Afghanistan or dealing with PTSD or whatever their issues might be, explain how the dogs actually help these veterans, because I think maybe people that haven't known folks with PTSD may not be familiar with how a dog can actually help a veteran. Right. It depends on the individual veteran and what the needs are, but the dog just brings them a lot of comfort, security. It keeps their focus on the dog so that if other things are going on in the environment, it could cause them 
some problems, the dogs sort of help them cope with it. And there's just, um, what I love about it is, is just a natural connection that I can't put like words to it. It's just the bond is just amazing. Um, the dogs sometimes, they don't even need a ton of training. As soon as they get paired up with the veteran, they sort of understand what the needs are and with the basic training. And then we work with the veteran in the home with the dog. It just starts to morph into one of the most amazing friendships and relationships I've ever seen. Uh, That's uh, outstanding. That's wonderful. Now, Isn't there an element of your work that also deals with teens that are in juvenile detention? What is that? Yes, we we did a lot of programs at the detention centers. We were the first group to have dogs on Rikers Island several years ago. We also currently work with Goshen Secure. And again, the dogs, when the program started, we work with juvenile boys um, anywhere from like 15 to 20. And, um, we had a lot of amazing things happen with that. When the dogs were brought in at Rikers, they actually lived in the unit for eight weeks and they were trained, um, Goshen secure. We do it more on a therapy dog, uh, you know, premise where they go in and they work with them and play with them. And we visit for several hours, but, that was another amazing thing we had at Rikers groups that were never allowed to work together. Different units get along. Um, the kids, the boys never wanted to cause any problem for the dogs. They never had any fights. They took the responsibility of caring for the dog um, very, very seriously. And, you know, some of these guys, you know, had committed some serious crimes, um, and that, you know, we never worked with a violent offender, but, you know, they robbed someone or they stole a car. I mean, they were in trouble. And um, the amount of care and concern that they had for the shelter dogs blew us away. And there were a lot of similarities. The dogs that wound up going into the shelter, you know, had nowhere to live. Um, they came up to the upstate in a van. I mean, there were a lot of similarities as to how the boys were transported from New York City to upstate New York to live at these detention centers. So the bond there was amazing. And dogs, I mean, if you speak to any of the psychologists or, you know, the the people that took care of the boys, um, they just, you can't explain the connection. It's just another piece that is amazing once the dogs do their thing with the young boys. And that's another really rewarding um, piece. I even had a young man who contacted me a couple of weeks ago, who was in my program seven years ago. And um, he's doing really well. He's never reoffended, but he works like as a waiter and he really wants to get back into working with the dogs. So we've got him connected with some of the major organizations in New York City to see if they could hire him. So the impact that these programs have on the young boys stayed with him. I was surprised he remembered. He remembered the dog's names. He remembered me. It was just really um, amazing that that program meant so much to him when he was incarcerated. 
Hey, uh, that is uh, well done, uh, Liz Keller. Hey, let me end with this, because I know you've spoken out in the press about this before. Occasionally, there'll be an issue in the news regarding a pit bull attack or someone bitten by a pit bull. Sometimes, in some cases, these attacks can be quite violent. And it always seems to spur a debate about whether pit bulls are um, inherently dangerous. Where do you come down on the question of pit bulls? There have even been calls to ban pit bulls in certain right. developments, certain communities, certain housing complexes. Where do you come down on the pit bull question, Liz? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the dogs we work with are pit mixes, and they are super sweet. I feel a lot of it has to do with how they're bred, how they're maintain because there are a lot of people, you know, that fight them or treat them poorly. So I have seen pit bulls that can become severely aggressive. So I'm not going to, but so can any other dog, shepherds and, you know, mixed breeds. So I think a lot of it has to do with the breeding. And there are so many good pits and pit mixes and they have a soul. Like that's why they connect really well with the soldiers. They just get it. As long as, you know, we check all our dogs, we call them like bomb proof. We would never place a dog with a veteran that had any sign of any issue or aggression. And uh, in fact, one of our dogs, Tasha, who's a pit mix, she was the first dog on Rikers Island. And she qualmed a lot of the fears that the officers had ah. because right away they're like, if you're going to bring pit bulls in or the are the uh, inmates going to start using them to hurt us. I mean, it, there is a lot of fear regarding that breed. So we try to go in as ambassadors of the breed to let people know that some of them, most of them are extremely lovable, caring, want to please. So, but I will not say that every pit bull is a good pit bull because I've seen it. I've, you know, I've seen in the shelter environment, they can also, you know, they were bred to fight initially. Um, they can escalate their personality or temperament or behavior if they're put in a in a crazy environment. So you really have to be careful how you house them in a shelter environment. And you just have to really do your due diligence to make sure that they are the best of the best. Liz Keller, we're going to have to them. end it there. I appreciate you taking the time and staying up late with us. Have a great Independence Day. Uh, thank you so much. You too. Thank you. And if people want to learn more about the work that uh, Liz and her group are doing, go to RescueDogsRescueSoldiers.org. I'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. I hopped off the plane at LAX with a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, XX. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my right and I see the Hollywood.
Cyrus singing what has become the modern Independence Day anthem party in the USA. Hopefully you're doing something both fun and patriotic today. Uh, we're trying to figure out our schedule for the day. I think we've committed to stop by at three or four different places, which sounds exhausting. So uh, I'm wondering if there's rain, which in our area they're predicting there might be some rain. I'm wondering if that will put a damper on some of these Independence Day celebrations. There's a great parade uh, near where we live. If I'm awake, I'm going to try and be there for that. And then uh, may stop by my mom's. And then... My friend, uh, my friend Jerry's having a party, may get by there, and then there's somebody else right by there that lives right by there. I said, oh, stop by. And my wife, Rachel, she was a little, little bit of a mood yesterday in any event because she didn't get very much sleep because of our son the night before. I'm hoping they're both sound asleep right now. But, uh, she said, look, I can already see what tomorrow is shaping up to be, and I am telling you, once it gets to be too much, once I've had enough, I am going home and you can stay wherever you are. But hopefully you are doing something fun. I am actually going to be off tomorrow. So uh you will be treated. I hope it's a treat to the dulcet tones of Anthony Weiner, who are going, who's going to be filling in tomorrow. The only thing that I would ask, and I know a lot of people are predisposed not to like Anthony Weiner for one reason or another just listen with an open mind. And you know what? If he says something crazy that you uh, that you disagree with, call him up and challenge him because he's very, very willing to have a respectful, polite debate with anybody. So I'm looking forward to that, although it is funny. I mentioned towards the end of our show yesterday that he was going to be filling in. And he said to me, Oh, well, um, I mentioned he was listening and then he texted me, what I am. He didn't know that he was filling in. Nobody had told him that he was filling in. And I said, wow, I hope I didn't make a mistake. And I sent him the memo that our program director had put out with the lineup of who was filling in then. And he said, "Okay, great. So hopefully that comes to fruition and he doesn't make a liar out of me but uh, he will be here tomorrow that's the plan as i understand it i'll tell you what is not here my and I, i'm not joking about this my monroe college mug i have this great mug that fits about 12 ounces of liquid in it and i can't find it i'm going to check the conference room because we did have a meeting in the conference room on friday and it was uh, maybe i walked in there with it and then left it in there but i looked Everywhere. I looked in my locker, looked in the other studio that I hang out with, looked at the studio that I record in, looked in this studio. It's nowhere. And then I'm sitting in the studio adjacent to this one yesterday before this program starts. And I'm saying, I said to Curtis Lewa, who's in there with me, I said, Curtis, have you seen my Monroe College Mug? He says, no, I haven't seen anything, anything like that. (laughs) And, uh, And he said, why does it seem like people are always messing with you and your stuff and taking your things? And I said, you tell me, I'm looking right at you. And he said, no, 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 I, I didn't see that. I don't know anything about it. And I didn't get the sense that he was being evasive. But I would love to know. It's a great mug. And I got that from Marty Bland, who I may see tomorrow, 
when he invited me to be a guest lecturer at Monroe College, those poor children, I don't know, whatever whatever I could uh, pass on to them. But I do like what Monroe College is doing in terms of increased automotive education, increased CTE education, and increased uh, trade education in general. It's a subject that we've talked about quite a bit on this show with Mike Porcelli. So I love that mug. It's so functional. I have a Frank Morano mug that I've been using the last two days, and it's nice. It looks nice. But I can't fit 12 ounces of liquid in there. I can fit at most 10, and the liquid goes all the way up to the, you know, the itty-bitty top. So it's um, it's not an ideal mug by any stretch. Hey, a uh, quick update on our situation, on the situation involving France. We, we've been telling you about these French riots that has have now gone on for a sixth straight night and it is just a it's a bad situation things do seem to be calming down and getting better and better every single night which is certainly a positive but there's two people that i really want to uh, give a a shout out to not a formal commendation but at least a shout out and acknowledgement because why should they have to wait until monday for a commendation and that is the grandmother of this 17-year-old that was killed, the 17-year-old that was killed by a police officer in a Paris suburb last week, Nahel Merzouk is the young man's name. The grandmother is calling for an end to the violent protests that have swept the country since his death, and she's appealing to protesters all over television. She's saying they should not damage the schools, not break the buses. It was the moms who take the buses. I'm tired, is what she said. The woman was identified as Nadia by a local television station. And Nahel's mother said um, that Nahel doesn't have a life anymore. So I give credit to the family for not ramping things up and trying to calm things down. Because as I said yesterday, I feel like whether it's the aftermath of George Floyd or the aftermath of Rodney King or what may go on in the Middle East from time to time or what's going on in France right now, you have this group of people that is just waiting to riot. They don't even care about the cause. They are just waiting to show their outrage at something. And I think that's part of what you're seeing here. And the other person that I have to give credit to is this French, I don't know anything about soccer in France, uh, but this French football star, I believe his, his name is pronounced Mbappe, Mbappe. He issued a statement condemning the riots. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says violence solves nothing. It's a process of self-destruction. It is your property that you are destroying. Yes, he's exactly right. And the thing that I don't understand is this is the most common sense statement in the world. Why doesn't everybody always say this after every riot? And yet... Can you imagine if an American celebrity or an American athlete had said anything like that after the George Floyd riots? They would have been instantly vaporized. Can you imagine, for instance, what the reaction would have been if Tom Brady released the exact same statement in June of 2020? And um, by the way, he's of Algerian descent. I know a lot of people were calling in here yesterday kind of hating on some of the immigrants to France. And his his mother is of Algerian descent. And his father is from French Cameroon. And yet here he is saying 
exactly what everybody needs to be saying in on this front. So I, uh, I'm glad to see that, and I'm glad to see the family of this young man calling for some calm. It is interesting that a fundraiser for the French police officer who shot and killed the 17-year-old has surpassed a million dollars, and that has now sparked a fresh wave of anger as nationwide protests continue because that is a lot more than the fund for the family has raised. So the fund for the family of the French cop, who has not been identified, is now four times larger than the fund for the family of the victim. So some people are saying that that's insulting to the victim and so forth, and that's giving people a whole new another excuse to riot. I don't think you ever have an excuse to riot in my book. Destroy your own property. Why? It is so incredibly self-defeating and stupid, in my view. All right. Until next hour, help control the, the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. The Other Side of Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. child i used to really love fireworks i got a big kick out of watching in my neighborhood people set them off and seeing them in the night sky and then i'd have maybe a little uh, sparkler myself and i really i really got into it i really thought it was a fun thing to do as a child I, i didn't get into any dangerous stuff like lighting m80s or stuff like that but my my Uncle Steve was very into fireworks. My Uncle Joe had a big 4th of July party every year, and there'd ever always be people that brought fireworks. I thought, it, as a kid, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Then, as I got a, you know, over the age of, say, 13 or 14, the luster kind of wore off for me. And then I went to the, I, I basically didn't care about fireworks for years. Then, when I would find myself driving home from somewhere on the 4th of July, depending on if it was a year where it was East River fireworks or Hudson River fireworks, I would be annoyed at the fireworks because they would disrupt traffic. But I still didn't think about them. I was annoyed by them because I don't, you ever try to drive home <laughs> when, uh, if you're passing the anywhere where these fireworks are visible, people just pull over. They pull over right in the middle of a highway. It's, it takes hours to get home. It's it's crazy. Remember trying driving trying to drive home from Long Island one time. It was a disaster. So it, I was annoyed by them, but I didn't think much of them. Then, when I started to work odd hours and needed to go to sleep at a certain time, these fireworks became much more than indifferent. They became much more than annoying. They became the bane of my existence. And then I would talk to people like um, Rudy Giuliani 
and others. But Rudy, hearing his stories about going to the hospital on July 4th and the day after July 4th and listening to um, and listening to the the story of these children that would be injured by fireworks. Um, it would just breaks your heart. It would just breaks, breaks your heart. It's just awful, 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 awful. And now over the last, I don't know what year is it of the last four or five years, no last six years living with three cats and seeing how these cats are terrorized by these fireworks and seeing how dogs are terrorized from these fireworks. I have to say, I didn't think I would ever get to this point, but I am now unabashedly anti-fireworks. And the more I learn about fireworks, the more I um, am against them. And I am really pleased that some people are starting to look at fireworks alternatives because the more I learn about fireworks, the more. And again, this is very off brand for me because two communities that I really love, Atlantic City, New Jersey and Coney Island, they make a habit of showcasing fireworks regularly and i like to um, embrace everything about those two communities but this is one where i think i have to part company i am off the fireworks train full throttle full stop and as you see these and i was listening to them as i was driving home yesterday uh uh, last night driving to work excuse me Uh, just hours ago people are already setting off fireworks i'm thinking all the dogs that are being terrorized all the cats that are being terrorized the the it's just ridiculous for what to see something go boom so as you see these smoky skies blanket the east coast and the west coast because of wildfire season many u.s cities are beginning to acknowledge that pounding the air with pyrotechnics in the middle of the summer is maybe not the best idea. So now, expanding on a trend that began last year, a number of cities, particularly in the West, are scrapping their July 4th displays in favor of drone shows. Drone shows. It's interesting because... A lot of cities, including New York under the Giuliani era, a lot of cities were all about stopping illegal fireworks. But they were okay with, say, department stores or museums or responsible professional fireworks displays going forward. Now, you are seeing more and more cities scrap these fireworks displays entirely in favor of drone shows. Salt Lake City is holding its first drone show today to be conscientious of both the air quality and the potential for wildfires. Boulder, Colorado, is doing the same, citing increased fire danger fueled by climate change. In California, Lake Tahoe and several other communities are also opting for drone shows. And community leaders are hoping their residents will embrace the change 
Kind of like the way baseball fans have embraced the pitch clock, something that people might not have been comfortable with initially, but most of us have grown to like. Not only are drones safer and better for the environment, but they're also quiet, which is great news for pet owners. And they can tell a a story in a synchronized way that fireworks can't. And as more events around the world, from the Super Bowl to New Year's celebrations, adopt drone shows, the market for them has grown from virtually nothing a decade ago to last year a billion dollars. So it is interesting. Uh, I'm all for this transition. Here's Laura Kavanaugh, the fire commissioner, in terms of uh, the importance of fire safety. She was talking to Fox two days ago. Every year we see incredibly serious injuries to civilians, particularly children suffering terrible injuries, sometimes permanent uh, life-altering injuries from burns to even missing fingers. And you think about that. This is one of those areas. I know people get a kick out of fireworks the way that I did when I was 11. But you think about the risk versus reward. What's the reward? You get to see something bright in the sky. And the risk in terms of the injuries that she's outlined there, I think, is just absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. Um, So then you have a situation where these fireworks are not going down without a fight. You're welcome to weigh in on this, if you will. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. In fact, fireworks have never been more popular. Americans increased their spending on fireworks by about a hundred million dollars this year compared to last year. Think about that. A hundred million dollars uh, compared to last summer. That's according to the American Pyrotechnics Association. If spending reaches, um, so if th- that uh, it doesn't show any signs of stopping anytime soon. So compared to if spending reaches two point three billion dollars this season, as expected, that would represent a three times increase, 300 percent increase, basically, from just 11 years ago. And compared to synchronized drones, fireworks are cheaper. A small drone show could cost twenty thousand dollars, while a fireworks display can land under seven thousand dollars. Plus, even the coolest drone shows don't quite stir the patriotic soul like the experience of watching explosives detonate hundreds of feet above you and illuminate the night sky. But as drone choreography goes mainstream and fireworks sales soar even higher, both types of shows will probably coexist not only today, but on the 4th of July itinerary for many years to come. Here is Jennifer Balk. She is an associate professor of geology at the University of Colorado talking about some of these fires that are caused by fireworks. Listen to this. July 4th is the single day of the year with the most number of humans started wildfires. There were 7,000 events that started over a roughly two-decade period. Think about that. And that audio is courtesy of Fox. Think about that. July 4th is the day of the year with the most human-started wildfires. Now, those of us that were walking around a couple of weeks ago struggling to breathe as we walked around in this orange 
fog, this orange hazy smoke fog. Do you really want a situation where you increase the amount of potential wildfires? And yet that's part of what fireworks are doing. They're bad for pets. They're causing air pollution. They're helping to start fires. They're noisy. What's the point? Uh, Sign me up for the drones. I will be the first one to light the match or fire the gun. Hopefully it's a digital gun that uh, the next time Atlantic City or Coney Island wants to transition to drones during summer on a Friday instead of fireworks. Are you with me? 800-848-9222. Why or why not? Injuries, air pollution, wildfires, and noise. To me, that's what fireworks are all about. I, I don't get it. I don't get the allure. I don't get any aspect of this. Now, again, maybe 12-year-old me would think a lot differently. Not me. 800-848-9222. Uh, Kenneth, are you a big fireworks person? Uh, I like fireworks. I mean, I, had a, I have a friend that every year for like the past four or five years, he goes all the way to Pennsylvania oh. and gets all the big guns and brings them and... We blow them off in the street till the cops break it up, but I don't know. I mean, I get a kick at them. I like them. Um, so I, fill me in. What, what's the what's the allure? Is it the color? Is it seeing something explode? What what is it? Yeah, I'd say it's mainly the color and the different patterns that the fireworks fire off in. Some of them you got bigger. Some of them you got. You know, I don't know how to articulate how what the patterns are of the fireworks, but. The way, just the different types of fireworks and mainly the colors. It's a light show. It's a big light show. Right. But so would a drone show, would that scratch your itch for a wanting, drone a, show? wanting to see a, a, nah. a light show? Why? Why not? Not a drone show. Maybe the uh, the Jones Beach air show that they have every year. Right, well, the air show is a, every a certainly year. A, different, uh, a different ball game. But yeah. know, it's funny. As far as, and, and I know um, a lot of people feel as Kenneth does. And um, I have a neighbor that I think is of this opinion, and I'm listening to them go on and on because I've been at parties and stuff where they shoot off fireworks. I don't care. I'm not going to I'm not going to rain on anybody's parade, but I'm listening to go on and on about the lights. And now, oh, look at how that goes in a pattern. I'll tell you what it reminds me of now. My 19th month, my 19 month old son, Carmine, is fascinated. He's almost hypnotized by ceiling fans and fans of all types, but especially ceiling fans. When we go to someone's thank goodness we don't have a ceiling fan because we would never be able to turn that thing off and he just would stare at it all day, hypnotized. When we go to someone's house and the, the first thing he does, doesn't matter if it's somebody's house he's been to for the first time or a hundred times, he goes to every room and looks up to see if they have a ceiling fan. And if the ceil- if they have a ceiling fan and it's not turned on, he just goes, uh, uh. now he's actually learning how to say the word ceiling fan. So he will say ceiling fan, ceiling fan, but uh, or something close to that. It drives him crazy when it's not turned on. And then when it's turned on, he'll do one of two things. He'll either stand there and just stare at the ceiling fan or he'll immediately leave the room and check all of the other rooms to make sure the ceiling fans are turned on. He, it's like he's an inspector for ceiling fan. But when I hear people describe staring at these fireworks to me i feel like i'm listening to my 19 month old son describe staring at a ceiling fan i just don't get it i don't get the allure i don't get what's so great about it but um 
clearly, I'm in the minority because I, there's a hundred billion dollars worth of people that feel the way my neighbor does and the way Kenneth does. I think it's just because it's become a staple of Fourth of July and a tradition for so many people in America that when you hear Fourth of July, what's the first thing you think of realistically? I, Obviously, freedom and independence, but fireworks. Everybody blows them off. I get that, and I could deal if this was one day. I have been hearing fireworks in my neighborhood for the last two weeks straight. Two weeks for every night. Every night. And all, every time I hear a boom that makes me, makes me think I'm in Fallujah, no disrespect to anybody that's actually served in Iraq, like the gentleman that we're about to speak to in 10 minutes, I, I'm thinking to myself, please let this not be the extremely loud explosion that wakes up my son and forces him to cry and then keep my wife up and then make her crabby when I have to talk with her the next day. Let this not be the one. Please let it not be the one. But if a 4th of July tradition, I can deal, right? Because there's a lot of things that are a a holiday tradition that may seem kind of silly, a fruitcake at Christmas or um, some, I happen to love gefilte fish, but a lot of Jewish folks that I know, they don't like, uh, gefilte fish when it comes to, to Passover. And I get it. But why then do they need to do it for three or four straight weeks? See, that I 110% agree with. The people that blow them off two weeks prior or even two weeks after, you'll still hear them blown uh, yeah. off. I agree with you. I think it's it should be designated for the day and the day only. All right. So that is, you know how they have the grand compromise. That's a grand compromise that I'm willing to agree to. Uh, July 4th only. And look, it doesn't matter if I agree because people are all about these fireworks. As I said, record number of sales in the last 11 years. There have been there's been a 300 percent uptick in fireworks sales. So clearly, uh, I'm fighting a losing battle here, trying to get on board the the drone ship. 800-848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Bill is in Montclair. Hello, Bill. Okay, Frank. I just want to tell you why I love America. I'll go through it very fast. First of all, and I think a lot of people should do some of these things. First of all, at the age of 13, I became a senior patrol leader. Boy Scouts was great. Boy, and I know they have some problems, but you can still find the scouting is great. Next, public high schools. That includes Catholic schools. I loved high school. A lot of people don't or, or, or don't, didn't like high school. I loved high school. We had a great group of guys, and that goes for Catholic schools, too. Public, public schools are wonderful. Then, in terms of going to college, we didn't have any money. Uh, and not that it was bad, it was a wonderful experience. I, I went to the University of Rhode Island. And in my freshman year, I said, I said, wait, and I ran out of money, I had to leave. But in my freshman year, the pledge class of my fraternity, we turned out four doctors, 33 pledges, four doctors, a dentist. I went to wow. Wall Street and two, two successful lawyers. Wow. Uh, now, so there's no such thing as a bad school. I, I, I can prove that because later I went to Fairleigh Dickens for an MBA. Uh, one of my doctors went to it's bad school, supposedly. There's no bad schools. One of my doctors went there undergraduate. I went there for an MBA, went to Wall Street, and my dentist went there undergraduate. There are no bad schools. Uh, one of the most successful guys on Wall Street and I went to Pace. Uh, and then and he became a partner. He was becoming uh, a partner with Bill, Goldman Sachs. Any thoughts on the, the firework prevalence? 
No, 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 I, 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 I will say this. That will be the fine. I will say as a final thing. Uh, I was born July fourth, nineteen forty-one. Oh, happy right? birthday! Well, no, we didn't have any money, uh, but they celebrated my birthday, and I bought it at the age of five. Look what they're doing for your birthday! <laughs> I was thrilled. Wait, so, and I bought it. Wait, so your birthday wasn't really July 4th? They just said it was for your no, birthday? No, it is July 4th. Oh, it is? Oh, but, good. Okay. What I'm saying, we had no money and all the fireworks and everything. Look how they're celebrating your birthday. All right. And I was into it. I love it. Happy birthday, Bill. Hope all your wishes come true. And I Thanks hope you, so much. I hope you wish for a few less uh, fireworks than uh, than we've seen before. 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Melvin is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Melvin. Yes. The solution is very good um, to what's going on. So all you got to look, look and see how all this got started. Every July 4th, I sit down and read about Frederick Douglass and his speech July 5th, 1852 in Rochester, New York, which laid the ground for Dr. King, check coming back, insufficient funds. All you have to put the truth out there, let the truth fall where they're going for, then we move on from there. Because people come to this country for one reason only. Somebody fought. My ancestors fought. I keep on dealing with that all the time. Melvin, let me ask you this. When, um, yes. when, you, when you spoke to Elias about what you wanted to talk about, did he ask you to turn your radio off? It's off. Well, what, what am I hearing in the background? Huh? I don't know. I hear something. Off. All right, now. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, I, I get back to my ancestors. For they go all the way back to you. Keep on condemning Minister Farrakhan, but you don't condemn the sons of the Confederacy or the daughters of the Confederacy. I don't see you condemning the Confederate states. And you got ten southern states here who uh, have a state mandate, pay holiday for Jefferson Davis on June third. I don't see you condemning that. But you gonna speak against Minister Farrakhan, who hey, he ain't done nothing. He just head up a religious organization. But yet, every time I turn around, that's what you could do. And you're going to condemn some. Talk about the lawsuit that woman launched in Chicago against uh, Chicago police and how Chicago is looking to privatize the whole school system. Talk about how New York City integrated its public schools in 1873. All right, all right, Jet, and, Melvin, how, and how New York Melvin, State, Melvin, um, uh, New York State eliminated slavery July 4th, 1827. New Jersey, 1846. Thank you, Melvin. Thank you. Let me be very clear. I am. This may be a very controversial thing to say. It may get me in trouble, but uh, I am one hundred percent completely against slavery, and uh, I don't care if people view that as controversial. I don't care if that gets me canceled. I am against slavery. Always have been. Always will. In my life, never owned a slave. Never been related to anyone that has owned a slave, and uh, raising my child to be against slavery. Uh, that being said, I uh, I think your comparison of the Confederacy with Louis Farrakhan is totally bizarre, honestly, because that was 1861 to 1865. Farrakhan lives in the year 2023, and I'm not going to say he's never done or said anything good, but the amount of hatred that he has spewed against Jews, against white people, against other black people. There's speculation that he may have even played a role in the uh, killing of um, of Malcolm X. The guy, I don't think, is a good guy at all. And, you know, you, for you to act like he's just heading this religious organization, like he's the Pope, I think is a real mischaracterization 
of the damaging incendiary rhetoric that Louis Farrakhan has put out there to the whole world, honestly. Hate that guy. And so I, I don't, I'm not saying that you should, um, you know, condemn. Well, no, I guess I am. I'm not saying that you, that uh, Louis Farrakhan doesn't have a right to free speech. He certainly does. I think it's just very telling when someone touts their association with Louis Farrakhan as if it's something to be proud of when I don't think that it is. All right. Um, appreciate the comment on fireworks there as well. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. William is in Manhattan. Hello, William. Hi, Frank. I want to say happy 4th of July. I was born in Navy base in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, as an artist and a comedian, I wanted to say that the 4th of July is something that's like the birth of hard work. I mean, between like where I grew up in the hood, you couldn't tell the difference whether it was fireworks or whether it was gunshots mm-hmm. or, 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 or grenades going out. I, I can't stand fireworks. I, I really, I can't fight, but I am a comedian. And, and, and it's sad because in the beginning, we had something that says who starts, who finishes it. We get into stuff, and if it wasn't for us, there would be so much poverty around the world. It is not a joke. And they don't appreciate I had to go through reciting the uh, uh, Pledge of Allegiance of the flag in high school. Yeah, me so did I. I All the way going back to elementary school, I did. Right. And and it's like the morals, uh, they're just just letting things go by, like like they want to deface the identity of our freedom in America. That's all I have to say. All right. Have a wonderful holiday, Frank. Yeah, appreciate that. Happy Independence Day to you as well, William. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. um, The war in Iraq was viewed very differently 20 years ago than uh, than it's viewed today. But the stories of heroism in the world of in the war in Iraq, the stories of fear, the stories of um, people going beyond what they thought themselves may be capable of, are just as prevalent in the war in Iraq, if not more so, than they were in any other American conflict. And there's this fascinating new book out called Ghosts of Baghdad, a true story that gets into the opening days of the Iraq war. And I can't think of a better day than Independence Day to talk with the retired Marine Corps colonel, who wrote that book, and he's going to join us straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Top Gun, it's great, isn't it? Well, imagine that as a book, and then imagine that as a true story. And that will give you some idea of what it's like to read a book that I've been reading through uh, the last week or two, Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps gunships on the opening days of the Iraq War. It's written by retired Marine Corps Colonel Eric Buer, and it is written in such a vivid manner that you actually feel like you're watching these conflicts in real time. This is not something that happened in a movie. This is something that happened in real life in some of the most dangerous areas along the Iraqi border and along Kuwait and all over the Middle East and when nobody would knew what was going to happen in this Iraq war 20 years ago. Very pleased uh, to welcome Marine Corps Colonel Eric Buer to the program, author of the book Ghosts of Baghdad. Colonel Buer, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the radio. Happy Independence Day. Happy Independence Day. Uh, thanks for having me here. Good. Glad to be with you guys. So, uh, Colonel, what made you want to write this book? Uh, obviously, the depictions that you get into in very vivid detail, a lot of these happened about 20 years ago. Why write this book now? What are you hoping people take away from this? Well, for me, it was a, it's always been a story that has needed to be told. And, you know, 20 years seems like a long time, but... Uh, this was in 2003, and I would return to Iraq again in 2004, 2005. I would, I would deploy to Afghanistan later in the future, and, and moves involved, and everything involved in kind of a military career. But I knew it had to be told. Um, I, I knew I had to tell. Uh, not, it's certainly not my story. It's the story of so many other people uh, told through my lens. But I, I really couldn't wait any longer, and, and I felt it was the right time to, to put pen to paper and, and capture these thoughts. When you use the term ghosts of Baghdad, who or what are the ghosts of Baghdad? Well, you know, nothing nothing scars deeper than a good dose of horror. And, you know, ghosts are a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, for me, uh, it, rep- it represents a lot of things. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's just kind of it's a fear of the unknown. Um, most, of my, most of my work was done at night uh, and, and was done at night for the next several years. And night flying... Uh, for those who haven't done it, or for those who've done a lot of it, uh, it brings a, a completely different dynamic into flying, particularly in, into combat operations. So there's there's just a, there's a natural fear, there's intrepidation, there's a there's a certain sense of the unknown every time you fly and launch. And uh, as the reader, you know, follows the story, I think they'll come to understand what I mean uh, by the ghosts and and how they how they always seek to kind of put it into me and in my and my comrades you have served in a bunch of other places i mentioned iraq you mentioned afghanistan you've served in the persian gulf you've served in somalia you've served in bosnia later on you served on the staff of the uh, chairman of the joint chiefs uh, what made iraq unique in terms of the 
the air war there. I think most of us that uh, that weren't there and don't know necessarily a lot about the combat itself, we think of Iraq and the Iraq war as something that was largely fought on the ground. But it, clearly there was no shortage of action in the air. What was the air war like in Iraq when you were there? So the air war for me and, and for all of us was it was a war of, of of support for us. I mean, everything we did is based on that young Marine, that young man or woman, and not just Marine, Marine soldiers, sailors. They're serving on the ground, um, and our job is to be there when they need us. Um, our job is to be the most prepared when, you know, we may not be the most prepared. Um, so uh, there was no direct threat. Uh, we, we didn't know initially. Uh, there was a pretty robust Iraqi Air Force that was soon put to bed. Um but the Iraqi ground forces were pretty formidable, and um, and they were well aware of our presence, and they did whatever they could to prevent us supporting those on the ground. So a different kind of air war, uh, but for us it was one uh, in support of those Marines on the ground. You know, the thing that I'm struck by is the vivid recollections of I, – I know a lot of this book takes place 20 years ago, but some of this goes back 30 years uh, to your time in Somalia – and I'm just curious how you have such an incredible recollection of what had happened. Did you keep a journal or are these events so seared into your brain that you had you had no problem putting pen to paper when writing about them? And Frank, it's, it's a combination of both. There's probably three things. You know, I, I did take very detailed notes. We took very detailed notes of every mission. Um, and one of the you know, more selfishly, one of the, the great parts about this book was I had hundreds of hours of interviews of my co-pilot, my wingman, his co-pilot, other squadron mates, uh, people I served with, uh, Marines on the ground. And then there's certainly events that just, uh, you know, if I, if I, you know, if I close my eyes and I think about it, I, you know, I could be there right now. It just, they are, they are seared in your memory. They're tattooed somewhere back in your brain and, and you just recall them. Um, so combination of things that, um, that let me get to where I am now. What do people not, the average member of the public, what do they not understand or not get right about the war in Iraq that you can kind of set us straight on? Well, I don't know that I necessarily have any, you know, really, you know, fantastic insight to the war in Iraq. I just, you know, there was a sense that we were doing absolutely the right thing. 2003 was only just 18 months after 9/11, and it's 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 almost impossible to to remember what 9/11 was to so many. I know, you know, where you in your great city, it's 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 seared, it gets seared in your memory, it's seared in your DNA. But there was a different sense of uh, of kind of purpose in 2003, and so for us, you know, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president, and that's that's my job as a commissioned officer in the Marine Corps. So. It was both a sense of certainly a sense of duty for us. Um, and there was a sense that we we're doing something that was right. You know, it's a dictator. It's a totalitarian society, a man who's, you know, certainly used um, you know, weapons of mass destruction, though. Um, one of our reasons for going in, we, we didn't find what we thought we were going to find. But he certainly had a history of using those against his own people, using those against his neighbors. Um, but also a sense that we were doing something right. Um, in the book, I looked at in the book, you you also get into a bit your time in Somalia, specifically the Somali desert. When you're flying in a desert, 
I would think that presents a whole bunch of new challenges where, you know, if you're flying over non-desert land or the water may not exist. Am I right? Is flying over a desert a, a different situation than flying over over a non-desert area? It is. You know, deserts are their own. They're their own ghosts in a lot of ways. I mean, it's 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 featureless. It's horizonless, particularly when you're flying at night. And so a desert themselves, uh, weather patterns and storms, sandstorms, things we dealt with uh, routinely, uh, make that type of flying just that much more challenging. Yeah, I, I can uh, I can imagine. What are you hoping people take out of this book? What are they What are you hoping they come away from this book with an understanding of? Well, you know, I I think number one, they have an opportunity to to step through an otherwise closed and locked door. You get an opportunity to open the cockpit, uh, step in the cockpit with me and my and my co-pilot, and my wingman, and you get to live our lives for, you know, in this case, I, I capture about twenty twenty five days plus or minus from the opening night of the war until where we, you know, we finally get into the Sunni triangle and, and we, we have, a, we have an opportunity to take a breath. Uh, and it really is the end of the, of the first war in Iraq, you know, it's in 2003. So I, I think it lets, that's the viewer. I mean, the reader that is, uh, understand who I am, who we are, um, that they're, we're nobody different than they are. We're their neighbor, their brother, and we're their sons. And, uh, and we're just, we're just doing the best we can uh, at the time. Uh, talking with uh, Colonel Eric Buer, his new book is Ghosts of Baghdad, Marine Corps Gunships on the Opening Days of the Iraq War. It's available on uh, Amazon and most places where, where books are sold. I notice you did ascribe, for the most part, a gender to the ghost, and it's almost always a she. Anything uh, that we can read into that, that you made her made the ghost a woman? No, there, there, there isn't. Uh, there's nothing uh, nefarious about that. It's just, uh, you know, when, when I, you just get feelings, right? You just get ideas and senses, and that's, uh, and that's where it brought me. Um, so that's that's how I that's how I label the ghosts uh, and their ghosts in this case, and that's uh, that's what I best think describes it. Uh, you be the book begins with a, um, a memo or a letter from uh, General General Mattis, uh, the commanding general's message to all hands that he sent out in March of 2003. A lot of us got to know General Mattis more as a political figure when he served as Secretary of Defense during the uh, Trump administration. What do you think of General Mattis as a military leader? What can you fill us in on regarding him? So my interaction with him was. Personal interaction was very limited, but his impact uh, it really can't be overstated. Um, he was the division commander, which he was a two-star general at the time, and he wasn't my boss or my boss's boss. He was on the on the ground side, but everyone knew him. Everyone knew uh, his place. Everyone respected him, and he had the way, or he had a, a very special way of kind of understanding why we were there. Uh, insights, uh, you know, a, a lifetime of study of history. Um, so he, he naturally had all of our respect, and uh, that's why I put that. I put that in. I carried that note with me. I, he sent a note to all his, all his Marines, and I, I found a copy and I kept it and I carried it with me because it said a lot. Uh, and it was very, very much what was all in our minds at the time. From now to compared to twenty years ago, it seems like there's been a lot of 
technological innovations in the way aerial warfare is fought. It seems like the use of drones rather than uh, manned aircraft is far more common than it was 20 years ago. There's a whole sixth branch of the U.S. military, the Space Force, uh, that uh, people are saying is going to be integral to how, uh, how war is waged in the future. How do you see the future of aerial warfare going forward, not just for for our country, but around the world? So I think, you know, that uh, the nature of war is, is a, it's a battle of wills and that, that'll never change. You know, you're right. The character of war continues to evolve. Uh, the use of drones, unmanned aerial systems uh, continues to grow. The use of cyber continues to grow. Uh, the, the, some, the somewhat you know, militarization or weaponization of space is only a matter of time. Uh, but I, there, there is nothing that can replicate uh, what people have said you know, for millennia. It's, it's boots on the ground that are there to protect your interests, your vital interests. Um, so I, I don't know that that will ever change. Man flight, um, I, I, people have probably said for probably 30 years we were going to build our last manned and that's, you know, fighter, I, I think that's still somewhere uh, in the future. Um, it still requires, you know, human in that loop making those decisions. So I, I think as it, we continue to evolve in the, 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 the advent of drones and, and more, you know, cyber-generated uh, effects, for lack of a better term, are, are gonna, it's going to grow. That'll continue to grow. But uh, I, I think it's still a battle of wills. It's, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take a lot of things to uh, – to field an effective force, to maintain that force, and that's going to be people, well-trained uh, young men and women who are uh, who are going to carry on what our what our nation uh, demands from them. When you see a war film or a film like Top Gun, for instance, do you enjoy it the way a regular person would, or do you say to yourself, "Oh, that's not the way a missile sounds when it's arming," or "That's not realistic. That's not realistic." Does your knowledge of this sort of thing make it more difficult for you to sort of suspend disbelief and be in awe as the rest of us might? Well, you know, in movies like Top Gun are just—they're just great entertainment, and they—they're uh, so well so well written and so well uh, produced that it just it's enjoyable to watch. And when I when I watch movies I I guess movies like, you know, Black Hawk Down and you know very realistic movies. And when I watch movies like that it it uh you know it does remind me of where I've been in my past. Uh and it and they're powerful movies and they bring powerful messages. Um and, and those very realistic history driven um and they do they do have me think about, you know, again what has happened in my not so distant past, but in modern military movies are always, they're a lot of fun to watch sometimes. You know, Top Gun, that's a great example. If you had to pick a, a, the most realistic modern military film that you've seen, what would it be? Would it be Black Hawk Down? Would it be Top Gun? Would it be something else? I think for me, without a doubt, it's Black Hawk Down. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, ha having served in, in Somalia, both pre and post Black Hawk Down, um, it, it absolutely it, you you feel like you're there. You can it feel as though you can almost smell it. You can almost taste some of the dust. Um, it, it it's very very realistically done. The relationship between air crews and ground crews, um, that kind of small unit leadership that is what's, what's going to turn the tide on any on any uh, battle is is all there. So I think that's probably for me uh, the most uh, impressive modern war film. Mm. Uh, what are you doing today for Independence Day? Well, I'll be here in beautiful Pensacola uh, celebrating with the city. Uh, I'll be downtown uh, with uh, 
with a great bunch of uh, veterans and active duty military and, uh, and just uh, spend a quiet day. Well, I appreciate you uh, staying up late with us, and uh, I appreciate you writing this book. It gives those of us that uh, have never been to combat a a ringside seat for what it is like uh, to be in uh, in some of the most un- unfathomable circumstances for all of us. And uh, thanks for your service to the country as well. Appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Uh, happy fourth to you and all your listeners. Thank you, uh, Colonel Eric Buer. The book is Ghosts of Baghdad. Check it out on Amazon, or you can go to uh, his website as well. Uh, the website is ericbuer.com. It's on there. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, it's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. I am not thrown away, ma. Shot. I am not thrown away, ma. Shot. Hey, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not thrown away, ma. Shot. I'm gonna get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is, I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. A shiny piece of coal Trying to reach my goal My power of speech Unimpeachable Only 19 But my mind is older These New York City streets Get cold I shoulder Every burden Every disadvantage This of course Is from the Hip hop musical Hamilton Which I enjoyed I never saw it on Broadway But the day I think it was Fourth of July Maybe Two or three years ago They made it available On Disney Plus And uh, we watched it And I liked it I liked it very much didn't love it the way I love 1776, but I thought it was very good. I thought it was interesting history. thought the music was great. The acting was great. I thought it was a very creatively told story, and the story of Alexander Hamilton, that is. And that, that uh, musical and the popularity of that musical may have actually played a role in saving Hamilton on the $10 bill. Because remember, there was this big movement to take him off the $10 bill. And uh, there was the thought that, uh, you know, he was out of step with the times. And I really do think that the renewed interest in Hamilton really caused him to be saved on the currency. So there's that. All right. 800-848-9222. We usually do the mail this hour on Tuesdays. We're going to do it in our last hour because we had a guest there, Colonel Buer, and we have another guest next hour discussing the Loch Ness Monster. So we're going to get into it in the last hour of the program. So if you'd like your, I have the snail mail. We still didn't finish. We still didn't finish going through the snail mail from last week. So we have some snail mail. I have a bunch of email. If you want to email me, you can send me an email, positive, negative, or if you have a question that you want answered, my email, my email is frank.morano. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com that's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com if you want to check it out so uh, that is where we'll be we'll go through as many of your emails as we can it's funny yesterday I alluded to the fact that I had a conversation with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. yesterday where he indicated that he might be able to come on the show today let me give you a little behind the scenes about what happened there. So 
Um, I sent the, you know, I was in touch with his campaign literally from the day that he announced, literally the day that he announced. And they were very receptive initially about, you know, coming on. And then I sent, and then kind of nothing. They basically said, oh, you know, he's too busy or no response at all. And so I'm in touch with him directly a little bit, and he's much more willing to engage with me. He gives me information that I ask for, all sorts of other things. And he, um, I sent this whole memo to his campaign team on Saturday, either Friday or Saturday, explaining the kind of audience that we reach, the numbers of people that we reach, and how many more people are listening to this show as opposed to some of these podcasts that he's going on. And um, the fact that, you know, uh, that I've said, I think, some very nice things about him on the air. And no response. No response at all from his campaign. Then Sunday night into Monday, at, you know, right before the show, I send him the same email that I sent to his campaign. I said, you know, Mr. Kennedy, I just want you to be aware. This is what I sent to your campaign. No response. He emails me back immediately. And then we, you know, texted and spoke by phone immediately, immediately saying, um, we'll get this scheduled. Maybe we can do it tomorrow. So then someone from his campaign calls me yesterday. Same person I've been dealing with. Nice lady. And she says, basically, hey, when you involve Mr. Kennedy in this, it really it causes me a lot more stress and it adds a half hour of work to my day. And now I was polite because I don't want to men- make an enemy of this woman that's doing all the scheduling. But I- I'm thinking to myself, the only reason I had to involve him in this is because you were not helpful in getting something scheduled. So, I mean, don't complain that I gave you more work to do when clearly this is a show that he should be on. So. um Ultimately, he said, all right, well, we might be able to do something tonight. Are you still up for having something tonight? I said, yes, absolutely. Be happy to have him. And she says, well, I don't know. It's July 4th. A lot of people are probably off. Maybe we have to skip. Maybe we should schedule it another day. So I said, all right. So I don't want to be too much of a, a nudge because she's already annoyed with me that in her view, I went over her head in the campaign to the candidate himself and created more work for her so it does look like he's going to be on this program on monday morning so i'm looking forward to that conversation and i've been given a lot of thought as as to how to make this interview different than all the other interviews that he's done because a lot of the other um interviews whether it's with michael smarconish or bill maher and others so much of it focuses on the vaccine issue. So I'm going to ask him about the vaccine issue, but I'm going to try to do it in a way that's different from what you've heard everywhere else and in a way that he can't bury me with data. Because we've spoken about vaccines in our previous interviews before. Here's one area where we went into in uh, a conversation that we had in August of 2021. You've been described by the the media, at least the mainstream media, as being anti-vaccine. Would you describe yourself that way, either for vaccines in general or specifically for the COVID vaccine? No. I, that is a pejorative that is applied to people like me who ask legitimate common sense questions about the science and the testing and the efficacy and safety of vaccines. 
in order to marginalize us, to vilify us, to censor debate so that Americans are not hearing the kind of conversation that we ought to be we, we ought to be able to have as you pointed out at the beginning of this broadcast a congenial civil fact-based conversation about this issue that's so critical to all of us but that is not taking place instead we're we're being subjected to a barrage of propaganda with no alternative uh, discussion, no alternative points of view. So as of now, he's scheduled to come on Monday. I have a lot of stuff I'm planning on going, getting into with him. I'm not sure how much time I'm going to have, but we'll see. All right. Uh, coming up next hour, we're going to talk Loch Ness Monster and more. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. the side of midnight i'm frank morano it's independence day that means it's time for celebrating america yes it's time for fireworks it's time for celebrating freedom it's time for going to a local parade maybe a barbecue maybe watching a great classic science fiction alien movie and maybe just maybe paying some serious attention to the Greatest event in all of sports, bigger than the World Series, the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup Finals, and the NBA Championship combined. The most exciting 10 minutes in all of sports takes place this afternoon. Yes, that's right. The Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest, which began... Really, they say it began in over a hundred years ago. That's uh, not really true. They, they, it began sort of in the 1970s as basically the kind of thing that they would do to, um, that they would basically just go and find some random people that were in Coney Island and get and see if they wanted to participate in the contest. And since that, that was that happened and that was i guess in 1972 or 1967 uh no it was so it, here's what happened it was initially on memorial day then it was on labor day then for they started doing it on july 4th uh in 1979 and back then it was 10 minutes and it was Really, not an impressive amount of HDB. 
hot dog and buns at all. They, um, they really, it was not a major big deal. The next year, 1980, you know what the winner ate? The winner ate something like, they had an eat-off. I think they ate like 10 hot dogs. Not, not impressive at all. In 1981, the contest was won by a 35-year-old. He downed 11 hot dogs in five minutes and then rushed off with his family to attend a barbecue. <laughs> so it was not really a big deal. But what we have seen over the 90s and 2000s is an explosion in this sport. And now the world record being over 76 HDB in 10 minutes is simply astounding. And it really started to change in um, the late 1990s when the sport was dominated by a Japanese gentleman by the name of Hirofumi Nakajima. And Nakajima was a champion, you know, three or four years in a row. And then he was dethroned. Now, just to give you an idea, the last year that um, and then there was another Japanese fella that beat him. The Americans won it back in 1999. Then another Japanese champion won it in the year 2000. Kazatuyo Arai won it in the year 2000, 25 and one eighth. HDB in 12 minutes. That's back when the contest was 12 minutes. And, you know, you might ask why there's so many Japanese eaters that are dominating this contest. In Japan, competitive eating is taken very seriously, as seriously as any sport is in the United States. And until recently, with the advent of Joey Chestnut, who we'll talk to and talk about in a minute, until recently, um, Competitive eating was not taken seriously in the United States. It was viewed as basically a carnival sideshow. Then from 2000 to 2001, the whole world changed. In 2001, that was the first year that Takaro Kobayashi won the contest. The tsunami, they called him. This man was a machine. Now, remember... Uh, Arai in 2000 wins with 25 and a half HDB in 12 minutes. In 2001, Kobayashi wins it with 50 HDB. In 2002, he breaks the record again with 50 and a half HDB. He wins again in 2003, in 2004, in 2005, in 2006, and then in 2007, it all comes crashing down. Joey Chestnut brings the mustard-colored yellow belt of supremacy back to the United States and becomes an American hero. And he wins it repeatedly uh, starting in 2007, and he won it last year. He won, I believe, his 15th title last year. He's competing this year, and he is going to, if he wins this year, be really probably regarded as the greatest athlete of all time. And he's going to be seeing if he can break his old record. Yesterday, they had the the weigh-in. 
They now have two separate contests, the men's contest and the female's contest. And Joey Chestnut was at the weigh-in. He indicated he's going to do whatever it takes to break the record. He doesn't care about the weather. It's not very good hot dog weather tomorrow or today. This is what he said. 76 hot dogs and buns, a lot of humidity tomorrow, very likely. Can you break it? I'm going to be sweating. It's not going to be pretty, but uh, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get those dogs down. And uh, we'll be making a run for the record. And Mickey Sudo, who's the number one ranked female eater in the world, she won last year with 40 HDB. There's now, there's now two separate contests. They do a male contest and a female contest. Mickey Sudo is ranked first. The only year that she competed where she didn't win was two years ago when she had to take off because she was uh, pregnant. He was Mickey Sudo. You know, last year I was really disappointed with my own number, so let's send that 40 out of the water, pass the personal best to 48, and have it go for 50. So she's going for 50. Her personal best is 48 and a half. Now, it is interesting. Uh, my friend Curtis Lewa, who uh, sat in for me recently when I was off, he actually participated in this contest one time. And just to give you an idea of how far the sport has come, the last time Curtis was in this contest, he finished in third place. And that third place finish that he had was he finished with 12 HDB in 12 minutes. That would not only not be good enough for third place these days, that would not even be good enough to qualify for the contest. That's how crazy it's gotten in terms of HDB consumption. And if you look at some of the old footage of these contests from the early 90s, the mid 90s, or if you see some of the photos of people that were participating in this contest in the late 80s, they all look like they could be uh, basically auditioning for Blues Traveler. These are very heavy set guys. These are guys that don't look like they're in great shape. They're guys that look, I'll describe it as morbidly obese. Then, when Kobayashi started winning, you see a very different look in terms of the kinds of people that are participating in this contest. And people have asked, what happened? Why did this sport all of a sudden go from being dominated by people that were very heavy to being dominated by people that looked thin and fit as a fiddle? And for that answer, we really turn to the Maspeth monster, Ed Cratchy. Now, Ed Cratchy was one of the people that dominated this sport for a long time. And he was one of the, he won this contest. He won it, I think, two or three times. Won it in 95, won it in 96. And it, one year he ate 19 and a half. Another year he ate 22. Now, forget about it. That won't even get you in the door. And... Ed, the Maspeth monster, Ed Cratchy, he came up with what they called the infamous, uh, he came up with the belt of fat theory. And he proposed this as a serious scientific thesis. And it was not taken very seriously within academia, but it was taken very seriously in the competitive eating community. And basically the belt of fat theory was that because uh, Ed Crotchy couldn't understand why, as he got heavier, he was able to eat fewer hot dogs. And essentially, he came up with the theory, and I think this has been borne out by other people that have studied this, that fat 
is much less flexible than muscle. So the more muscle you have on your abdomen, the more your stomach is able to expand outward. And you really, to be able to consume 40, 50, 60, 70 hot dogs like a Kobayashi would, like a Joey Chestnut would, you really need to be in great shape. And look, there are people... I have um, mixed feelings about this this contest because I love it. I absolutely love it. I love the theater of it. I love George Shea, who's the head of Major League Eating, but also the impresario, who we'll talk about in a second. I love the showmanship of it. Modern day P.T. Barnum. It's great. However... Look, I don't eat Frankfurters, and I'm hopeful that uh, my son doesn't become a Frankfurter eater because they are horrible for you. They are among the worst foods that you could eat. I mean, I remember when Ralph Nader testified before Congress on the issue of hot dogs. He called them red missiles of death. Now, George Shea does PR for the Nathan's Hot Dog Company. So, I mean, I, on the one hand, feel... I feel, you know, I'm conflicted because I feel somewhat guilty about talking about this event and enjoying an event that celebrates the hot dog, which we really shouldn't be encouraging anybody to be eating. But on the other hand, it's just so much fun. I just can't help myself. For those of you that are unfamiliar with George Shea, this is the sort of introduction. To me, that's what makes it. So George Shea, just understand, he is the announce. He's almost like what Vince McMahon was to wrestling where he's the lead announcer, but he also owns Major League Eating. He and his brother, Richard, they own Major League Eating. And th- th- to me, the highlight of the event is the introductions. The introductions that George Shea does for all the eaters. This is a sample introduction of what you might hear. This is from 10 years ago, George Shea at the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest. <laughs> is that that's 2013 10 years ago he does this every year he works the whole year on this here he is in 2015 he was born outside of time a witness to all possible realities he was there when the sea and the sky were mixed together as one and humans floated from the depths of the pacific to the very edge of space where they looked out at the stars in the blackness he was there walked the earth, and he watched as mankind built great cities, developed technology, and invented complex language with combination words such as bromance, labradoodle, manscaping, frenemy, and craptacular. One man has witnessed it all, and of all time, and of all realities, this is his favorite year in Coney Island. That's it! A man of history! Eden! 
That was his introduction of Tim Eaterex Janis, who is another guy that's one of the main top-ranked competitive eaters in the country. Never in a Joey Chestnut category, never in a Matt Stoney category, certainly not in a Takara Kobayashi category. But he really crafts all of his introductions for each eater. For Joey Chestnut, it's very heroic. For Tim Eaterex Janis, it's very much uh, mysterious, almost like he's an alien or very science fiction-y. Um, and Eric Badlands Booker, who's really the last eater that's still very heavy set, he's a rapper. So his introduction to Eric Badlands Booker a few years ago was a takeoff on one of Eric Badlands Booker's own raps. Here was his introduction of Eric Badlands Booker. Would you care to join my following? following. Ladies and gentlemen. The green pea. Oh, actually, see, this is actually not his introduction. This is the uh, this is a rap song that he did with uh, Badlands uh, with Badlands Booker. But I'm going to see if we can find his in- introduction for um, for Badlands Booker that he's given before. But um, in terms of uh, George Shea. I have uh, spoken with him many times over the years. I invited him to come on with me this morning, but he was obviously busy preparing for the contest. And I asked him a few years ago what about one of the most common questions that I get when talking about this contest with people. This is uh, George Shea, who runs this contest, who's in charge of it. What happens to the stomach and in the bodies of these folks after consuming dozens of hot dogs and buns in only 10 minutes without being too graphic? Can you give us an idea of what goes on over the next day or two after this contest? Well, thankfully, uh, I'm not involved in that process uh, intimately. I I don't know is the short answer. Um, I do know that uh, these folks really enjoy the hot dogs. Um, I don't know how one would, you know, manage, you know, 50, 60, 40, 70 hot dogs. I, um, I do know, however, that the, the eaters are in incredible physical condition. Mm. And what I was struck with uh, by this year was eight of our men, um, are bodybuilders and fitness enthusiasts and nutrition crazies, you know, and, and if you look their 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 body fat was like sort of a 10% body fat. It was somewhat remarkable. Um, so they're very health conscious, but um, on that day, they're definitely eating more than usual. Uh, so, I mean, that's the one thing people ask me so much about uh, in terms of this. Now, you might a lot of people might asking might be saying, all right, we know about Joey Chestnut. What happened to Takaro Kobayashi? This guy that had this great rivalry, one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports. By the way, there's a wonderful documentary that ESPN did about this. It was, uh, it was called, it was a 30 for 30. I forget what they call it, but it was a 30 for 30 ESPN documentary. This documentary, no exaggeration, is so moving and so interesting and so dramatic. You really have to see it. Other than the OJ documentary and the Ric Flair documentary, it was the best 30 for 30 that I had ever seen. And it chronicles the rivalry between Joey Chestnut and Takaro Kobayashi. And honestly, it gave me a whole new perspective on the rivalry. But I asked George Shea, what happened to Takaro Kobayashi? Why doesn't he participate in the contest anymore? I, I know I've asked you about this before, but a lot of folks were asking me when I had the uh, hot dog eating contest on at my house, it, is whatever happened to that Japanese guy that used to eat all those hot dogs? Briefly, can you explain um, how it came to be that he's no longer in the contest? We had what, what 
you'd call a contract dispute. We have a contract with our readers that prevents them from competing against us directly or our clients, right? So we don't want someone doing a contest being crowned uh, the champion of one food or another and then going the next week to a rival brand and saying, you know, this is better, right? That kind of thing. Mm. Nor do I want someone competing against us. I make them a star on the stage, biggest stage in, in America on the 4th of July, and then they go, I'm going to, I'm doing contests to compete against major league eating. You know, that would be unfortunate. That Those are the fundamental elements of the contract. Kobayashi did not want to sign that. He wanted the freedom to go to the 4th of July and then compete against us in any way he wanted. And we said, no. And he said, well, then I'm not coming. And we said, fine. And this dispute has gone on for I think about uh, I think about nine or ten years, and it's really uh, such a shame uh, because uh, Kobayashi really should be in this contest. He's the only one that can keep up with Joey Chestnut, and um, he really should be. They need to work this out. And I get where Kobayashi is coming from, be- and this is one of the areas where a lot of people have been critical of George Shea in Major League Eating. They say, "Look, they run the contest." And yet they also manage all the athletes and they um, they put the, the and they're determining who wins and who loses. So it does represent a little bit of a conflict of interest. It's almost as if Don King was promoting a fight and managing both fighters and staging the show and the lead announcer on the show. It really is almost like pro wrestling. So that's one of the complaints about Major League Eating, and I hope they can work that out. I just saw uh, just yesterday online a documentary, a little bit of a documentary called Scarf Face. And I think they did a good job, and they have one journalist, and I'm not sure of his name. I think his name might be uh, Adam Felder who explores this this rivalry between Kobayashi and Joey Chestnut and the issues that have caused Kobayashi to be banished from Major League Eating. This is from the documentary. It's available online. Scarf Face. Takeru Kobayashi is Japan's king of conspicuous consumption. Can you go into the conflict that Kobayashi had with George Shea and MLE in terms of licensing? Sure. Um, so, conflict that Kobayashi has with MLE. It turns out you can't actually make a whole lot of money as a competitive eater unless you are at the very top of your game. How much were you making, like, in revenue on average? I think some years I made, like, 15, 20 grand. Maybe one year I made 35. I mean, I think a few of the guys made, uh, like, 75 grand on, like, some TV show. <laughs> You're like, come on, I didn't get that TV show. I would have loved to do that, you know? At a recent competition in New York, he devoured 50 and a half hot dogs in just 12 minutes, setting a world record and leaving much bigger competitors wallowing in his wake. Kobayashi had a lot of star power, and he had some offers in terms of doing endorsement deals. Two hot dogs, please. There are some things money can't buy. For the quick snack, there's MasterCard PayPass. Major League Eating give Kobayashi a platform to get this celebrity. So Major League Eating wanted a cut of his endorsement money. And Kobayashi basically said, I don't want to give you a cut of my endorsement money. I am putting you on the map. Without me, there is no Major League Eating. Emily uh, never allow me to compete in the contest. You gotta, uh, it never happens. So Major League Eating basically said, okay, if you're not going to play ball with us on sponsorships and giving us a cut of this money, then 
you're not going to be a major league eating. I think they squeezed Kobayashi out personally. I don't think it was the way they needed to go down. And that's why you see Kobayashi do these sort of side events consistently to help pay the bills. That's why he has that weird Terminix deal where he's trying to eat things to be like a termite. 857 tater tots over the course of three hours and 22 minutes. New world record. For humans. The official all-day eating title still belongs to termites. Termites! And that's why he has on July 4th, you know, Kobayashi eating Kobe dogs at some obscure bar somewhere. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, I mean, he is one of the best-known competitive eaters. He's not allowed in Major League Eating, and it does a disservice to both of them. He's not making as much money as he could if he were in Major League Eating. Major League Eating isn't as important of a sport, isn't as well-known of a sport, because they don't have a viable challenger and haven't for years. Matt Stoney came up and beat uh, Joey Chestnut. But Kobayashi really was the only legitimate challenger when you're talking about two athletes at their peak. So there you have it. That's the that's the story as told through that documentary, Scarf Face. And uh, it is really just a shame. They need to remedy that. Now, some people have asked, why did they change the contest from 12 minutes to 10 minutes? And, um, you know, they don't say vomit in the world of competitive eating. They use the term... They use the term reversal of fortune. And I think the the reason they moved it from 12 minutes to 10 minutes is there was just too much of a likelihood of reversal of fortune. And uh, I think that's kind of what you're seeing here. And there was just too many HDB being consumed. So now it's 10 minutes. It's good at 10 minutes. It's fine. 800-848-9222 if you have thoughts. 800-848-9222-JR is in Brooklyn. Hello. Frank, good morning. I worked uh, in Coney Island as a police officer for a long time, and I used to watch I watched it from the roof of Nathan's. It was phenomenal. Some of the stuff George Shea says beforehand when he's warming up, he 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 puts together these sentences that are just crazy about fighting dragons and uh, sleeping with the devil. It's really it's really something to watch. I was also there when they arrested Kobayashi. Right, uh, that was in in that clip that I just played. Yeah, what was that like to witness that firsthand? It was it was a sight. It was more. It, it seemed more of a publicity stunt than anything. Uh, they they. I believe he was arrested for trespassing and some type of disorderly conduct. I, I I don't know the charges. and I don't know the real specifics of how it, it went through in court and stuff like that. But I think they did him very dirty as well because, like you said, they're controlling every aspect of the sport. And they're holding the purse strings on an international star. And I think they squeezed Kobayashi out as well. We, you know, we, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because the guy was phenomenal. The nicest man you'd ever meet in your life. He was, you know, really nice guy. How come you can't just go out there and get a, you know, make some type of saw? You're not making any money. Yeah, no, no money I agree. I, I completely agree, JR. Hey, what do you say since you've been uh, witness to this firsthand and seen all the people that, um, that, uh, that turn out for it? And there are thousands of people that come out for it. Oh, it's crazy. What do you say there? to people? Oh, uh, that, um, what do you say to people that say it's not a, a sport? I mean, it, it's, it's, I think it's more of a show, but there is, a, I guess there's an athlete, because it doesn't seem like athleticism. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't seem right. like it's not you're, like you're running track or, um, right. you know, or lifting weights even or something along no, those but lines. There is tr- but there is training that goes into it. 
you know what I mean? You can't just show up there. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, and, I know. And be like, I know. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm on the fence, honestly. I know it's, it's an easy cop-out, but I'm on the fence because it doesn't seem like athleticism, but, you know, you, you could pack the corner of Surf Avenue and Stillwell Avenue with thousands and thousands of people. I'm going to go ahead and say it's a sport. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one, Jr. I think it's much more of a sport than, say, miniature golf, right? I mean, that's where uh, I, hey, Kenneth, I know you're a sportscaster from time to time. Are you, uh, do you, do you follow competitive eating? I do not, but I don't know if I would deem that a sport. You would deem it a sport? 100%. Absolutely. Why not? Why do you say it's not a sport? I don't know. I I feel like there's no athleticism involved in it. See, that's where you're wrong. These guys train. You have to see, you have to see a Michelle Lesko or a a Mickey Sudo or a Joey Chestnut or a Matt Stoney. These guys train. That's why they're all in such good shape. All right. We're going to go live to Scotland in a moment and uh, see what the story is with the Loch Ness Monster. But I'll leave you this last word from the contest. I guess this is about seven or eight years ago with George. Shay. This is not a parlor trick. This is not sleight of hand. This is Major League Eating's best ever. Joey, the best ever to play the game. You want another truth? Radicchio is the sleeper wine of this summer, my friend. I want to remember this day. The esophagus of a champion. The stomach of a warlord, we've been told. 60 hot dogs, nobody even close right now. Sincati, Esper, and Breeden all battling for second behind the greatest eater of all time, Joey Chestnut. A mere half minute away from number 11. 18 dog margin for Joey Chestnut. This place will erupt. The countdown has begun. Once again, it's become old hand. It's become commonplace here in Coney Island. Nathan's Famous owns July 4th. Joey Chestnut owns America. A legend already. The legend continues. Number 11 for Joey Chestnut here at Nathan's. Unbelievable. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I am red and white and blue. These are colors that ring true. To The great Dolly Parton singing about America and American traditions. Um, There is no greater American tradition than exploring mysteries. And there are, there's no greater mystery that has captivated the eyes of people and ears and imaginations of people around the world than the Loch Ness Monster. Well, the Loch Ness Monster, we've been hearing about this creature for decades, maybe even centuries. People have claimed to have seen it. People have gone to Loch Ness in Scotland looking for it. In fact, one of the early documented couples to ever see the Loch Ness Monster 
included Aldi Mackay, who spoke about her experience with the Loch Ness Monster. This audio is from, I think, 1988 or so, but the encounter that she and her husband had had was decades earlier. It just rose out of the water, black, wet, with the water rolling off it, and I yelled at my husband, stop, the beast. Now, what's it all about? Is it real? And if it is real, what is what is it? Well, someone that has been trying to prove the existence of the Loch Ness Monster for decades has been Steve Feltham, and he has dedicated his life to solving the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster for more than 30 years. What's he done and how's he done in that regard? Well, he joins us live right now. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Well, I say good morning. You say good evening. Good evening, Frank. Exactly. As long as it's good, we'll take it either way. So, uh, Steve, fill folks in on your story. What sparked your interest in the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster initially? Well, mine's a lifelong interest, really. I came here on a holiday when I was a seven-year-old boy in 1970 with my parents and my brother, and we, by chance stopped in at a the headquarters of an expedition of Nessie hunters called the Loch Ness Phenomena Investigation Bureau. And these were the volunteer Nessie hunters that would come every summer for about 10 years around the 1960s, 1970s. You know, when you saw those black and white photographs of people sat on top of vans with binoculars and tripods, that was this gang. And I got hooked then and there that day on grown men looking for monsters in a Scottish loch, really. And that fascination just grew and grew with me. And as life went on, I came more convinced with more visits back to the Highlands. And I suppose when I got into the mid-20s, I went into a job that I really didn't like. And so I was 26 by then. And I started thinking to myself, is this what I'm going to do? Am I going to do this job I don't like and settle down, get married, have kids and all that normal stuff? Or on the other shoulder, I had this voice screaming at me, don't find the Loch Ness Monster, get on with it. And so by the age of 28, I thought, no, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to dedicate my time to trying to solve this mystery. And so set off, arrived here full time in 1991 with the mission statement. I'm going to get some evidence of the, these animals and I'm going to prove to the world that this isn't just a fairy tale. There's something big, unexplained, swimming about in this body of water right here. And for the last 32 years that you've been there, since June of 1991, how has your yeah. mission in terms of looking for evidence gone? Well, from, um, turns out I'm not as good at it as I thought. Um, <laughs> the, I've had one decent sight, well, one sighting of something unexplained in the first year, actually, of being here. And that was like a torpedo. If you imagine a torpedo going against the waves, the spray of water as it just crashes through the waves, so like a white streak, almost like I sometimes would say like a jet ski, but without the jet ski at the front of it, that sort of thing, shot through the bay five or ten seconds. And being the first year of being here full-time, I just froze and pointed at it. 
And as soon as it disappeared, I thought, damn it, I'm supposed to photograph these things. That's what I should have been photographing. But I thought, well, this is the first year. It'll be along soon enough. I'll get, I'll <laughs> photograph it next time. So that's where I am at the moment. I'm waiting for the next glimpse of something unexplained on the surface. So but I'm, you, out, I'm out on boats occasionally using sonar, and we do get contacts with things that way. So the so. best evidence that you've seen from since that initial sighting are these sort of sonar pings of of creatures or a creature in the lock. I would say the best evidence I've ever seen are the sonar contacts that were. They've been, there's a friend that's got a boat at Fort Augustus at the far end of Loch Ness, and they've got some very, very good sonar on that. And they do keep picking up contacts with something size of a truck. And, you know, that's not a salmon. So that, but because I'm, because I'm on the shore, I live on the beach at Dawes at the north end of Loch Ness. And because I'm here full time living here and everybody around Loch Ness knows there's this bloke that's looking for the monster over there. If anybody has a sighting of something, they get sent along to me to show me their photographs, their videos and, you know, so I see so much more evidence than I ever would if I wasn't here. And, you know, a lot of the time I can let people down gently and say, well, you know, those seven humps are following that boat or it's the way the wind works on the water or mm-hmm. waves or, what you know, all sorts of different so you, you find that happens a great deal where people come to you with what they think is evidence of seeing Nessie. And in fact, it's not. It's something ordinary and normal. Yeah, very much so. I would say 90% of the time. I mean, in the last month, I've seen, no, in the last two months, I've seen probably four separate witnesses with unexplained bits of photographs of things. And I think I can pretty much explain three of those away, really. And so I try to let them down gently and hopefully keep their false alarms out of the public domain so that the only thing that's going into your Sunday newspapers is things that actually defy explanation. So I'm a sort of filter filter of the good, the bad and the nonsense that we get. The um, the the skeptics in our audience might say that part of the reason that you haven't seen any Oh, convincing photographic evidence or yourself has been might be because these creatures aren't real. What do you say to people that think there is no, no such thing as the Loch Ness monster and that it's not real? Well, uh, I find I do hear that occasionally, surprisingly, in the job I do, and I find that if, when I inquire as to what people know, these people know about the subject. The less they know, the more likely they are to say, yeah, it's rubbish. Mm. But the more they know, the more they've read about it, other than what's in the tabloid newspapers, really, the more likely they are to say, well, hang on, there might be something going on here. So, you know, it it doesn't put me up nor down the opinions of skeptics that haven't really investigated the subject. It's, you know, there's Mm. people believing in some a lot more implausible things than this and you know at least least the mystery that i'm fascinated by whatever these animals are it's contained in this 23 mile long by a mile wide body of water so 
eventually we'll get the answers. Needless. And, and, uh, yeah. Carry ne- on. Uh, so needless to say, you're not giving up anytime soon. Absolutely not. No, 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 no. This is, uh, I'll be here till we solve it, really. That's my mission statement, very much so. Um, you've referred to these creatures, plural, uh, several times now in our conversation. So you're convinced that there are multiple creatures in the lock, not just one. Yeah, I am, I'm very much... Um, I mean, this legend of something in Loch Ness goes back 1,400 years to the first sighting by St. Columba in 565 AD. So... If it were one monster that we were looking for, that would be 1,400 years old. And, you know, I might be crazy enough to look for monsters in a Scottish loch, but one 1,400-year-old one? I'm not that daft. <laughs> I do believe we got a small population of something. And the term monsters is not, you know, that's the umbrella title that we get given for this mystery, but we're not looking for a monster. I'm no longer, unfortunately, no longer looking for long-necked dinosaurs. I don't think that's the answer in here. Um, you know, I, it's it's going to turn out to be something a little bit more mundane than a plesiosaur. I think it possibly might turn out to be giant fish, big fish, like catfish, like a world's catfish or something. Mm. But we don't know. We the- don't know. Now, you gave up uh, a very good job and uh, a very standard life and, and career in which you could have done very well in order to to do this. So now, what do you do for money these days and for the last 30 years since leaving your job and starting this new life? I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked. Um, I, make, uh, I take a stone, uh, find a beautiful rock from the shores of Loch Ness, and then Using this modern polymer clay, I model this figurine. that It looks a bit like, remember Dino the Dinosaur in the Flintstones? Sure, love Dino. Yeah, it looks a little bit like Dino the Dinosaur. and It sits on this rock, and then I bake them in my oven in the van, and they become a, like a plastic. And I've got a little table outside the mobile home that I live in, and... I put them out there, and nowadays, because 32 years on, I'm not exactly anonymous in what I'm doing. Literally, coach parties will pull up and want to buy a souvenir. You know, and and it's a short season. Our our summers aren't that long in Scotland. So I sell a few of those, and that brings in enough money to keep me ticking on for the rest of the year, really. That's terrific. And I'm looking at some of these... These uh, models of Nessie now, and if people want to check them out, they can go to nessiehunter.co.uk, and they're very good. Now, I'm looking at the green, the pink, the purple, and uh, the blue. Do you believe that this is a pretty close approximation to what Nessie looks like? I Well, um, hmm. I offer the guarantee that if anybody can prove they're not accurate, I'll give them their money back. <laughs> so I appreciate so that. Far, <laughs> Until proven differently, they are accurate. But, um, yeah, money-back guarantee if, uh, if they're not. We've heard a lot of stories about people that have seen a creature in Loch Ness over the years. Catherine Fraser, this is some audio of her from 30-something years ago, maybe a, little, a bit more, describing the Loch Ness monster or the Loch Ness creature 
phenomenon and what it's like to, to witness this. Always the people who lived around Loch Ness believed that there were creatures there, not the monster, but creatures who used to live in the sea because this was an arm of the sea and then there was a landslide and they were cut off. And um, there are many of these creatures and people have seen large ones and small ones together playing. When I was a little girl, I knew an old gentleman who, when he was quite a young lad, worked in the canal at the end of Loch Ness. And one day the gates wouldn't close and they let the water out of the lock and they discovered this creature caught in the gates and it was dead and they fished it out and it was just like a huge sea serpent. And the people came to look at it and they just said, oh, it is the water beast. Steve, how common are these Loch Ness monster sightings? When we talk about someone that has seen one of these or multiple of these creatures, mm-hmm. are we talking about a couple of people or are we talking about thousands of people or is it something in between? I know you alluded to the first sighting of one of these creatures going back yeah. 1,400 years. How common have these sightings been throughout history? Well, I would say down through the years in the time that I've been here, I somewhere around about half a dozen a year that I find truly unexplainable. And over over the grand total of years that the subject's been going on, there's a guy that keeps a record of register of Nessie sightings. And he, you're looking at a couple of thousand unexplained reports of something far bigger than the resident fish swimming about in here. Problem is, if whatever it is, is a kind of fish, then they really don't need to come to the surface very mm. often. I think the most common time is on a flat, calm day, and the back just breaks the surface briefly, and then, poof, back down it goes. And, you know, we only get glimpses of these things. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a mystery. It would be solved pretty quickly. And your best guess as to why here, why Loch Ness, is it similar to what Catherine Fraser just alluded to, the what the prior geography of this area looked like? Or why aren't these creatures in more places? Um, that's part of the mystery, really. There's, there are, there's another loch in Scotland, Loch Mora that has a lot of evidence for something in there. America's got a few lakes with things, Lake Champlain's got something unexplained going on. But, you know, around the world, there are reports of bigger animals in bodies of water than the locals know of, you know. Mm. So it's, it's not a unique location. This is just the world's most famous lake monster. And that's why I dedicate my time here, because I figure solve this one and it raises the credibility of all of the other ones. So my first mission is to solve this one. Then I'll go off and solve a few of the other ones. There you go. This, what, one, this what one's you, taking slightly longer than I thought. I, must I, admit, but, yeah. I can imagine. Uh, what do you think is the... We've all seen, I think, or many of us have seen, that uh, photograph of something that looks like a dinosaur's neck poking through Loch Ness. What do you think is the most compelling certified as genuine photographic evidence that we've seen of this creature? Well, by far, it's, to me, it's Ronald McKenzie's sonar contact of the 20th of September 2020. 
And that's, he took a photograph of the sonar screen showing in 600 feet of water this single solid sonar contact, which to somebody who doesn't watch sonar very often would just look like a croissant in a U-shaped valley. Mm. But to somebody that looks at sonar a lot, that croissant is a classic solid single object, as I say, the size of a truck. Wow. So, and that's 100 foot off the bottom of the lock, and it shouldn't be there. That boat goes over that same spot eight or ten times a day, and he's been doing that for 40 years, and it's not always there. So that, to me, is best evidence I've wow. ever seen from lock. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at these images now. It certainly is very, uh, very compelling. Steve Feltham, I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, if people want to either donate or buy one of these dolls, which I actually may get one of these models for my, my son, they can go to nessiehunter.co.uk. That's N-E-S-S-I-E hunter.co.uk. Thank you for taking the time this morning, sir. Good to talk to you, Frank. Good luck. Good luck. Uh, Hopefully the next 30 years proves more fruitful. I'll let you know when I find it. Appreciate it. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Living in America, James Brown, obviously one of the great patriotic songs of all time. Also, uh, one of the great boxing movies of all time, Rocky IV. A great, great um, scene where James Brown sings that in that picture, Rocky IV. And it's funny, I worked for years with Warner Wolf, who was a sportscaster, and much like our sportscaster, Kenneth, even did not recognize competitive eating as a genuine sport. And I used to add, Warner is in that picture, and he is the commentator for that Apollo Creed-Ivan Drago match right after James Brown does this contest. And so I um, Warner said that they had to stop filming repeatedly because James Brown kept forgetting the words to living in America. And he was serious. He wasn't joking about it. So, which I thought was the strangest thing in the world. Because the only words you can actually make out in that song are living in America. So you could just keep saying living in America again and again, and it would sound exactly the same. Well, 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 well. In 2014 or thereabouts, maybe 2015, I was working with Joe Piscopo, and he was in Florida for some charity event. Joe's always going to a charity event. And he was basically doing an interview with Carl Weathers, and he allowed me, Carl Weathers played Apollo Creed, he allowed me to participate in that interview, and I asked Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed, if what Warner Wolf said was true. After the top of the hour, I am going to play for you 
what he said about Warner Wolf's version of living in America. Well, Warner Wolf, originally a Baltimore guy, well, at least in terms of his sportscasting career. So I'm sure a lot of folks listening on WCBM very familiar with Warner. Uh, we'll get into that and a whole lot more in just a moment. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. The Other Side of Midnight. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. sorts of mail here. I mean, we're not going to get to all this mail today, but we'll get to as much of it as we can. And if you have email, email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. All right. So Warner Wolf said that they had to stop filming Rocky Four repeatedly because James Brown kept forgetting the lyrics to his own song, Living in America. Well, I had the opportunity to ask Carl Weathers that very same question nine years ago. Was Warner right? Listen to my question and Carl Weathers, a.k.a. Apollo Creed's response. You know, well, a fellow I used to work with, Carl, Warner Wolf, said when you guys did Rocky Four that it was supposed to take three hours to film that scene in the famous exhibition match scene, but it ended up taking two and a half days because James Brown kept forgetting the words to living in America. Is that true? And how did, uh, you know, or is that something that Warner just made up over the years? Uh, maybe maybe he, he was sitting at a different angle and had a different perspective. I wouldn't say it wasn't true. There's no way we could have shot that in three hours. Yeah, yeah. There's no way. We couldn't have shot. We were lucky to get it in three days. No, you, James Brown remembered everything. By you, the way, there was a track playing, so yeah. how could he, you know. And there was so many, I mean, to, to that point, and it, uh, uh, to that point, uh, there are so many different angles to mm. that. They, she shut the you heck know, out Joe, of that. You oh know, Joe. You know. I mean, first of all, look at the dancers in the theater. Yeah. And the oh, whole thing. Just oh. shooting that, you couldn't have shot it in three hours. But, man, you got right with it, man. You we, came had, up. we had such a great time. Was it fun? Look, for me, that's one of the greatest moments on film. Ah, when Apollo comes up and is dancing great. with yeah, James yeah, Brown. Yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. who in his right <laughs> mind in this business, in the entertainment industry, can say they were on stage dancing with James Brown James in a major Brown. motion so picture. True. Oh, come on. It is. Carl Weathers said Warner Wolf was mistaken. Now, I still, and I played that for Warner. And Warner basically admitted that he was wrong, but he, he didn't really offer much of an explanation as to why he was wrong. But Warner's a great guy. And um, that was the only time that I met Carl Weathers or that I spoke to Carl Weathers, but he seems like a pretty great guy, too. Only person in Predator not to get elected governor, that's for sure. All right. Today is Independence Day. A lot of things people don't know about Independence Day. For instance, John Adams, 
who was integral to the founding of the Republic. And, you know, if you watch the musical 1776, which is one of our Independence Day traditions, and uh, my wife asked me yesterday, do you want me to wait before watching 1776? And I said, no, don't wait, because it's two and a half hours, and you could start while I'm asleep, and I'll probably wake up during it, and I'll, I'll join you and, and Carmine. But John Adams wrote to, I believe it was his wife, Abigail, that Independence Day will be the most memorable epoca in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shoes and games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. And John Adams said that and believed that from 1776 onward, as long as the Republic survived, that July 2nd would be remembered as Independence Day. That's right. If John Adams were alive today, he would tell you July 2nd. Other founders would say that the proper day of Independence Day was July 4th. That's the day that we now recognize as the federal holiday. So which is it? July 2nd, or is it July 4th? Well, officially, the Second Continental Congress declared its freedom from Great Britain on July 2nd, 1776, when it voted to approve a resolution submitted by Richard Henry Lee, the Lees of Old Virginia, declaring that these United Colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, and that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British Crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. John Adams thought that that's the day they voted on that resolution, and that's the day that would be celebrated as Independence Day. And it makes sense, because after the Congress voted on July 2nd, they then needed to draft a document explaining the move to the public. And this is kind of the one aspect of 1776, the musical, which is not completely historically accurate. But you know what? It's a movie. They weren't really singing and dancing in the halls of Philadelphia, of of Independence Hall and so forth either. You know, there's some stuff you have to throw in there for literary license. So anyway, after voting on independence on July 2nd, The Continental Congress then needed to draft a document explaining the move to the public. It had been proposed in draft form by the committee of five. Everyone always talks about Jefferson, but it was Jefferson, Ben Franklin, John Adams, Robert Livingston, a New Yorker, and Roger Sherman. And it took two days for the Congress to agree on all the edits. And once the Congress approved the actual Declaration of Independence document on July 4th, it ordered that it be sent to a printer named John Dunlap and about 200 copies of the Dunlap broadside of that Declaration of Independence were printed with John Hancock's name printed at the bottom. And today, today, 26 copies of that declaration remain. That's why the declaration has the words in Congress, July 4th, 1776, at its top, because that's the day the approved version was signed in Philadelphia. So if you're talking about what day we voted to become independent, it was July 2nd. 
You're talking about what day the actual declaration was approved. It was July 4th. There's all sorts of other cool aspects of early American history that um, the people forget about. And John Adams might have been the first person to suggest fireworks. I would submit it's because they didn't have drones back then. He didn't know about drones. That's all they had. So some people think the idea of um, marking major events with fireworks originated with John Adams. And in a letter to his wife, Abigail, he suggested that illuminations be part of the future Independence Day celebration, the first of which was held in 1777. So they were doing fireworks on Independence Day all the way back to 1777. And the news of the Declaration of Independence started riots. In his book, Thomas Jefferson, David Seville Muzzy wrote that news of the Declaration of Independence caused colonists to riot against King George III. On the night of July 4th, citizens of Philadelphia ripped King George III's coat of arms from the state house door and threw it into a bonfire. In the Bowling Green section of Manhattan on July 9th, military personnel and colonists tore down a statue of King George III and melted it into musket balls. In Savannah, Georgia, citizens even held a fake funeral for the king when the news finally reached them in August. So I think uh, I think that's very, very, very interesting. Um, July 4th, by the way, was not a federal holiday until 1870. Nearly a hundred years after Massachusetts made July 4th an official state celebration, Congress declared, declared Independence Day an unpaid federal holiday as part of a bill to officially recognize several holidays. In 1941, 4th of July became a paid holiday for, for federal employees. The White House did not even have a 4th of July party until 1801. You remember who was president in 1801? Guy that had a very special connection to Independence Day and the Declaration of Independence specifically. Thomas Jefferson. Very interesting as well. Most of you, if you follow history, probably know the story, probably heard about it. But for those of you that haven't, I'll tell you. And for those of you that have, it's still such a fun story. Both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were integral to the writing of the Declaration of Independence and to gaining the political support within Congress to pass that resolution for independency. Because people don't realize they decided that this bill would have to be, this resolution on independence, this declaration would have to be unanimous. Nothing, no vote ever had to be unanimous. Everything was majority. Once in a while, something had to be two-thirds or three-quarters. They declared that this vote had to be unanimous because they felt that any colony that voted it down basically would be forced to fight on the side of England. And a civil war was not a great way to get a country started. So imagine the politicking, the lobbying, the campaigning that needed to take place within the Second Continental Congress in order to get to a place where there was unanimity. And both Jefferson and John Adams were integral in that entire process.
And some of that is depicted in 1776. So then anyway, both of them play key roles in George Washington's administration. Thomas Jefferson as the first secretary of state, John Adams as the first vice president. And these two did not agree on the political nature of the country. And they did not agree with the way the country should be headed. John Adams became a Federalist, one of the first two political parties. Thomas Jefferson was the founder of the Democratic Republican parties. And these two fought and complained bitterly. And then these were two of the most popular men politically in the whole country. And the question then became after George Washington decided to not run for a third term, because remember, George, there were no term limits back then. George Washington could have kept getting elected and serving as president until the day he died. And he was incredibly popular. He absolutely would have been elected again and again. And no one ever thought that he would step away from it. King George III even said that if he really does step away from power, he'll be the greatest man that ever lived or something along those lines. And the question of who would succeed him was a bitter one. So John Adams runs for president. Thomas Jefferson runs for president. And back then, this is before the days of uh, the uh, 12th Amendment and that whole deal. Back then, whoever finished second in the Electoral College voting would get elected vice president. So you have these two guys running against each other. And when the founders conceived of the Constitution, they really didn't conceive of political parties. They didn't think that all the Democratic Republicans would vote for one guy and all the Federalists would vote for another guy. They thought that people would go out and seek the most qualified person for the job. I mean, imagine that, how naive. Everyone's talking about how bright these founders were. Clearly, they weren't so bright. So John Adams finishes first. His running mate, I think it was Pinckney. Pinckney does not finish second. The second place finisher was Thomas Jefferson. So John Adams ends up as president. Thomas Jefferson, the guy that ran against him, ends up as vice president. Now, you can imagine what the next four years were like. It was not a happy presidency for John Adams for a a whole bunch of reasons, many of which were self-inflicted. He made a lot of mistakes, but he's stuck with this guy, his chief political rival as his vice president. And he's basically Jefferson while he's vice president. He's fomenting discontent all over the country. I mean, imagine if when Donald Trump was elected, Hillary Clinton ended up as vice president. Do you think she'd sit there idly by and not do anything? No, she'd be fomenting as much anti-Trump dissent as she could. These two go from being friendly to being sort of friendly to being bitter, bitter rivals. And there's so much acrimony between the two of them. And then it only gets worse. It only gets worse between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Because then, in 1800, they had what we're likely to experience next year. They had a presidential rematch. Jefferson and Adams running against one another again. This time, though, Thomas Jefferson wins. A very contested election in the House of Representatives where Alexander Hamilton actually plays a pretty significant role in getting Thomas Jefferson elected president instead of Aaron Burr. That's a story for another day, though. So. Adams is bitter as bitter can be. 
And throughout the entirety of the Jefferson presidency, eight years, they don't speak. They don't communicate. And they go from having once been friends and once been co-workers to the most bitter of political rivals to then having no relationship. No relationship whatsoever. Whenever one of them bring, whenever someone brings up the other's name to one of them, all you can hear is a flurry of insults. And then a couple of years after Adams and Jefferson are both out of office, they renew their relationship through letters. And they had gone, uh, they didn't have a relationship while either of them were president. They begin communicating again. I believe it was around 1818, uh, but I'll, I'll double check that one. No, 1812. It was during the War of 1812. They started writing again, and then eventually they mailed more than 185 letters to one another and at the time their friendship was still tense and their political divisions were still very ripe they had very different visions about how the country should be governed but they continued writing for the next 11 years uh they were friendly and they congratulated one another on their life successes and especially in the case of uh, john adams when his son became president on their familial successes and they developed quite a quite a relationship. And I still go back and read some of those letters that they exchange with one another. And you really are struck by the brilliance of both men. So then July 4th, 1826, who's in office as president? John Quincy Adams. It is the 50th anniversary of the of the Declaration of Independence and us becoming a country, something that both of these men play an incredible role in. And that day, July 4th, 1826, Thomas Jefferson dies. Now, back then, you couldn't text, you couldn't email, you couldn't even hop on the telephone and inform people of what was going on. Sometimes it would take days, weeks, months for news to travel. So Jefferson dies in Monticello, Monticello in Monticello in Virginia dies that same day same day miles and miles away in Massachusetts that same day July 4th 1826 the 50th anniversary of the founding of the republic that same day John Adams dies now John Adams i think was around 92 at the time he didn't know that Jefferson had died. So do you know what John Adams' last words were? John Adams' last words were, Jefferson still lives. He was upset about the fact that he was about to die before Jefferson did. And sure enough, uh, he did not. He outlived his old rival by at least a couple of hours. But he didn't know that. He didn't have the satisfaction of knowing that he had uh, outlived um, Thomas Jefferson. But it's one of the most fascinating things in, I think, American history. The fact that they both died on the 50th anniversary of independence, personally. But, uh, but it is interesting. You know, Frederick Douglass challenged the idea of Independence Day, July 5th, 1860, uh, 1852. 
Frederick Douglass deemed Independence Day a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he was the constant victim. But after the war ended, um, America's four million slaves, former slaves, transformed July 4th into a predominantly black celebration in the former Confederate states. And after a white mob broke up a Republican rally on July 4th, 1875, the exclusively black celebrations met increasing opposition from white Southerners and eventually petered out altogether by the end of the 19th century. George Washington celebrated the day during war. Keep in mind what was going on during the Revolutionary War. George Washington commemorated the July 4th date by issuing double the usual rations of rum to each soldier in the Continental Army. That was his way of celebrating Independence Day. Double the rum. That was in 1778, two days, excuse me, two years before any state would make the day an official holiday. And you know what? which I didn't know. I just learned uh, looking up some stuff for this segment in new England. People eat salmon on the 4th of July, a little known tradition. And it's so obscure that I, even I didn't know it. Not that I'm the be all and end all of American history knowledge, but they eat salmon on independence day in new England. The tradition of eating salmon on the 4th of July essentially began in new England as a coincidence during the middle of the summer. Salmon was abundant in rivers throughout the region, so it was a common sight on tables at the time, and the dish eventually got lumped into the fourth and has stayed that way ever since then. I had some yesterday, left over from the barbecue, which was uh, which was quite good. Only one president ever born on the 4th of July, Calvin Coolidge, and the other only other president other than Jefferson and Adams to die on the uh, 4th of July was James Monroe. Although, I will tell you this, there was another president, Zachary Taylor, who died after a 4th of July party because he did he did not die on Independence Day like Jefferson and Adams did. He died as a result of a pretty wild 4th of July party. According to historians, uh, this is wild to think about, Zachary Taylor apparently contracted foodborne cholera after eating spoiled cherries on July 4th, 1850, and died five days later. So those of you that are celebrating today, be careful with those cherries, will you? And please, unlike the folks in Philadelphia or Baltimore, please do not, do not shoot up any block parties. 800-848-9222, that's 800 848 Two, two. You know, it's interesting. There was a holiday that was created to rival Independence Day in 1915. During his 4th of July keynote address, Louis Brandeis, who most of us know now know as a Supreme Court justice, he announced the first Americanization Day, an effort to celebrate immigration rather than restrict it, as many Americans wanted to do back then. See, the more things change, the more they stay the same. During his speech, Brandeis explained how Americanization Day and that movement would unify new and old Americans. But for better or worse, the holiday did not stick. 
You know what country also celebrates the Independence Day? You know, one of the things they say, one of the famous trick questions is they always ask, um, what other country has a Fourth of July? And, you know, you're supposed to be a smart aleck. And when the other person says none, you say, no, every country has a Fourth of July. They also have a Fifth of July, a Sixth of July, a Seventh of July. Well, America is not the only country that celebrates the Fourth of July. The uh, the Philippines officially gained independence from the United States by signing the Treaty of Manila on July 4th. 1946. So that it's a big national holiday for them as well. It's the uh, Philippine Republic Day. 800-848-9222. So whether you're celebrating by going to a parade today, eating uh, a frankfurter, apparently there are world there will be 150 million frankfurters consumed today or even watching some fireworks, just please do so safely. Hopefully you have a great Independence Day. 800-848-9222. Mark is in Rochelle Park. Hello, Mark. Happy Fourth of July to you, Frank. Thanks. Uh, wonderful uh, little history lesson. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm really glad you got that out for the people to listen to. Thanks. I don't want to be a stickler, but I believe Adam's last words were Jefferson lived. I think he said it in a good way, because it's amazing how one word, when you say Jefferson still lives, sounds like he was angry. I think he was happy and uh, in, in, in a way saying Jefferson's still here. Thank goodness. You know, that, that's my take on it. So I, I guess verbatim, the people that were there, um, they said his last words were Thomas Jefferson still survives. So um I have seen it depicted both ways in depending on the book and depending on the movie. But I hope your version is correct. Yeah, because when you said it, I just I'm driving now. I said, oh, my gosh, I I, man, I know know a lot about their relationship. But I said I thought it ended on a good note and not a bad note. Well, again, it was it was very much I I hope it did. uh, But it was very much a. Uh, a friendly rivalry, uh, very much sort of uh, 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 even once they rekindled communication. I don't think Correct. they were ever one in one another's company again. But um, no, at, least, at least via letter, it was uh, it was mostly a friendly, friendly, friendly rivalry that they had, though. Yes. Well, anyway, thanks so much. Happy Fourth of July to you, Frank. Thanks. You too, Mark. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two. Two two eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. But yeah, later in life, Adams vowed to survive until the fiftieth anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and both he and Jefferson were were able to do it with their death. When they died in eighteen twenty six, there was only one signer of the Declaration of Independence still alive, and that was Charles Carroll, and uh, he lived until eighteen thirty two. Charles Carroll, one of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, was one of four Marylanders to sign the Declaration. Big shout out to all of our listeners in Baltimore. 800-848-9222. Rick, the original Rick, is in New Jersey, which was one of the original 13 states of our union. Hello, Rick. And, and proud of it. Good morning and happy fourth. Thank you. The reason, I'm, the reason I'm calling, Frank, is to address your concern about uh, graying at such in a uh, accelerated rate you were complaining about the other day. Okay. Okay. There's something you can take. My friend went from snow white 
the jet black again within six to eight months, complete head of hair. You, you don't get more hair, but the color comes back to your original color. It's called catalase. I know you're going to put it in C A T A L A S E. And it's what an is enzyme. it? A pill? Yeah, it's an enzyme. It's a natural, it's a natural substance. You the know, reason you go gray. I'll look into it. I'll look into it. Yeah. That, that's listen, yeah, listen, is it expensive? No, no, it's not. Um, the reason you go gray is your hair produces hydrogen peroxide as part of its thing. And we usually have an enzyme that gets rid of that before it dyes your, it, it, it bleaches your hair. Unfortunately, as we get older, we don't make as much of that. So your hair actually is coming out your natural color, but it's being bleached before it comes out of the root. So this prevents that. It puts it back in and it doesn't bleach your hair. I, people constantly accuse him of dyeing his hair. Now, I saw it happen. I saw where it was unusual. He had white hair with black roots. It's usually the opposite way. And so I know it was not him dyeing it. It was. It, I saw it took six months for it to happen. So, yeah, I just thought I'd turn you on to that. Wow. Hey, have you tried it? No, the reason being because I'm 70. And when you see like a 70 year older man with no gray at all, you, people think you dye it. You know, and it doesn't. And so I'm I'm at the point where I'm salt and pepper. So I kind of it isn't bad, but I'm afraid that people are going to go. Yeah, he's just dying his hair. So why? You know, he you're young. You 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 won't look like oh this guy's got to be dying his hair. But me at a certain age, it doesn't look. I you know will I will look into this actually, Rick. Thank you. Hey, those of you that are holding, uh, if you want to hang on, I'll still get to you. We're also going to go through your mail. If you have any mail that you want read. Uh, via email, you can uh, write to me at frank.morano, that's, excuse me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. What we're going to do in a moment is we're going to give you a special Independence Day edition of the $1,000 Minute. So I'm going to ask 10 Trivia questions, all somewhat related to American history or to the revolution. And if you can answer all 10 in 60 seconds or less, then you will be $1,000 richer. In order to qualify, you must be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. My name is Richard Henry Lee. Virginia is my home. My name is Richard Henry Lee. Virginia is my home. And may my horses turn to glue if I can't deliver up to you resolution on any plan and see. For I am F. The first family in the sovereign colony of Virginia. Yes, the FFB, the oldest family in the oldest colony in America. And me, 
the British burn the land If I can't deliver to your hand A resolution on independence You see it's here Ah, the great Richard Henry Lee As depicted in the musical 1776 uh, a, my favorite musical of all time, uh, bar none, and a, a show that I was fortunate enough to see the revival of. I wasn't interested in seeing the new version, which was all uh, weird and politically correct and all female and all transgender and all minority. It just wasn't for me. I, I didn't want it to. I kind of enjoy the show as is. But I did see a Broadway revival with Brent Spiner, who a lot of us as Star Trek fans remember as Data. He played John Adams, the William Daniels role. And I really enjoyed interviewing William Daniels a few years ago about his time playing John Adams. All right, without further ado, it's time for other side of midnight presents it's the thousand dollar minute answer 10 questions correctly in one minute and you could win one thousand dollars here's your host frank morano and let's say hello to glenn in hillside hello glenn yes good morning frank uh i how are you doing this independence day uh, okay, very good. Uh, looking forward to uh, activities. Uh, down in Long Branch, New Jersey, they have Ocean Fest, and uh, it's a nonstop uh, entertainment, uh, all different genres of music, and it uh, culminates at dusk uh, when the fireworks begin. Fun. All, all right. Of vendors. Good. Yeah. All right. Have you heard this segment before? Uh, very few times. <laughs> okay. Well, it's very it's very simple. So I'm going to ask you ten trivia questions. You're going to have sixty seconds to uh, to answer them, and if you can answer all ten of them, you're going to be a thousand dollars richer. The timer is going to begin after I ask you the first question. So if you uh, get a question correct, I'm just going to move on to the second one. I'm not going to say, oh, that's correct or whatever else. If you get a question incorrect, you'll hear a buzzer, and that indicates that you're that you're out of luck. Okay. You ready to go? Got it. Yep. Okay, it's pretty simple. What day is Independence Day celebrated? Uh, July 4th. What country did the U.S. declare independence from? Great Britain. How many states were there initially? 13. Who was the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army? George Washington. Who was the president of the Second Continental Congress? Uh, Jefferson. Ah no, I'm sorry. It was John Hancock was the oh, was the president. That's why he got to sign first and had a big signature on there. But I'm sorry, uh, but uh, but he was he, Jefferson was the third. He got to be the actual president. He was the third president of the United States under the Constitution. Glenn, well done though. I'm going to put you on hold and uh, give your information to Elias. We're going to send you a, con- a consolation prize. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Glenn. Appreciate that. All right. Without further ado, uh, we are we have a lot of mail to get to. I don't know that we're going to get to all of this, but we're going to get to as much of it as we can. It is time for letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Letters. Let's find out what you got to say. Oh boy! Mail, 
should, I guess, probably begin with the snail mail because uh, there's really um, these people had to wait a while before we were able to figure out how to get all this uh, all this snail mail. So why don't we go through this? This has this from Pennsylvania, but it doesn't have a doesn't have a return address as far as I can see. All right. Frank, your son sounds traumatized when he says no. When do children say mama or dada? Are you sorry you spilled your milk? You ask Carmine, what do you do to him when he spills his milk? Uh, didn't crawl when other kids, girls were crawling. Red flags to check out if he has normal development. He opens his mouth. What does that look like? Doesn't sound good to me, poor kid. Happy Father's Day. Well, first of all, I appreciate the concern. Uh, but I, you know, w- when we go to see his pediatrician, his pediatrician indicates that uh, not only is he, you know, is he doing fine, but uh, that he's actually ahead of schedule developmentally in terms of language and in terms of in terms of other areas. So I I think he is I, I think he's doing just fine. Uh, so uh, hopefully anyway. I mean the thing that worries me more than anything is the 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 obsession with ceiling fans. But I appreciate the concern there. All right, this is from again no return address, but also from Pennsylvania. Hopefully it's actually it's the same handwriting. I think it's the same person. This is a card. Frank M. Zippy cup spill proof. How much milk gets spilled? Carmine. How experienced is milk in New York? How expensive is milk in New York? You wanted to take milk home from the office refrigerator, didn't you? Would season place shower be a help to Carmine's learning show? I, I'm not sure if English is this person's first language. All right. Uh, this is from return address Brooklyn. Frank, the, the outside of the envelope. I love when they have messages on the outside of the envelope. Frank, your opinions don't consider that slavery denied blacks equal opportunity. Would you deny the reparation the Germans are paying? That's on the outside of the envelope. Let's open it up. You know this is going to be good. Uh, The inside is a letter. Very good handwriting here. Uh, Dear Mr. Moreno, at one time in history, Americans would never elect an Italian-American or Jewish-American president. Has that changed? One, um, two, explain the proportion, the promotion for your podcast with Chin's daughter. Is she gay? Uh, yes. What well, one, I think we would elect an Italian or a Jew. Okay. So it's a series of questions. Now I get it. Two, yes. Um, Rita Gigante is gay. Three, are your screener controlling the shows? No, the board op does. Four, Curtis Lewa makes you appear to be a punk. You think that's funny? I think oftentimes it is. Five, Curtis, Marilyn Monroe, Rudy, now you. What? I don't understand. Uh, Bill O'Reilly's like Obama. They are school teachers. Bill is Irish and seeks to overlook the fact his people were treated like blank. All right. I appreciate that. Uh, let's see. This is from Harvey Rosenfeld of the Bronx, who right, who's got some coins here. What is Oh, buttons. Oh, look at this. You got a, a Mario Biaggi button, but... It's also his name in, I believe, Hebrew. So that's kind of cool. And Mario Biagi campaign uh, button. See, I love stuff like this. Thank you, Harvey. My wife is going to be just thrilled that I have one more knickknack to take home. This is from the Racial Justice Reform Movement. This is way too long. 
And um, this is, uh, I'm not going to read this whole thing, um, but I'm sure it's about a quest for racial justice. This is from Bunny Abraham. Oh, this is the same article I read last week, which is a letter from Colonel Gordon Cooper of the Air Force to Ambassador Griffith on the subject of UFOs. All right. Let me get to as many of the emails as we can. Oh, first of all, those of you reaching out via SMS text message at 8168-MORANO, one person writes... Something similar to Jefferson Adams happens in some states, such as North Carolina, has GOP Lieutenant Governor Robinson opposing Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. I said, no, they're elected separately. They don't give it to the second place finisher. My point was, according to this guy, they did not get along together, just like Adams and Jefferson. I think it's totally different. I think having someone of a different political party in the leadership with you is completely different than having someone... Uh, that you ran against as your running mate. I don't think that's the same at all. All right, August writes via email, Loch Ness, a long-necked freshwater small whale? Question mark. Very, very possible. Who knows? Lawrence writes, Dear Frank, happy fourth to you and yours. Generally, subject, not a proud American past two years. Happy fourth to you and yours. Generally, I felt more than proud to be an American since the Reagan days. However, in view of the incentivization of the illegal invasion of this once great nation, the U.S. as the 25th least corrupt country today, which is nothing to be proud of, the Afghan debacle, less respect and fear of our country by foreign governments, lack of adequate national gun control, as well as the rampant crime, lack of racial harmony, the frequent faux pas by our president, and of course, Hunter Biden's outstanding scam. Handel Vortex, etc., do not make me feel as proud of being an American today and in as in the last couple of years. You're most welcome to read this on air. Sincerely, Lawrence. You know, I'll just say, because I got a bunch of emails like this from both sides, and I'll read a couple, but I don't think you should allow political leaders and the foibles of political leaders to um, dictate whether you're whether you're proud of your country or not. I mean, in other countries, they have awful leaders. And they still manage to have some degree of patriotic pride. Tom writes, proud to be an American? Question mark. It's hard to be extremely proud to be an American today when so many Americans say things like what a poster wrote today in your Facebook group. Liberalism is a mental disorder. His capitalizations. It's not a minor matter. If people like your poster who believe that liberalism is a mental disorder gain political power and they are trying to do just that... They would have no compunctions about curtailing the freedom of the town square that you cherish. Liberalism would become a disorder like those in the DSM, not a different political way of thinking. Yes, I'm speaking of the growing fascism in America. Barbara, on the subject of patriotism, dear Frank, yes, I'm proud to be an American while recognizing what Mark Twain said. Patriotism is supporting your country all the time and your and your government when it deserves it. As a country, we could do better by ensuring that everyone is fed, especially the children who go to bed hungry and housed and have access to the health care they choose at a fair cost. I would be prouder than I am today if I saw politicians and those running our country being honest in their public life. Best regards and enjoy the fourth. Again, I just I, I get what she's saying, but I don't think one should allow people's political i don't think one should allow political leaders to dictate their level of patriotic pride christine writes hi frank 
At the risk of being repetitious, I love your show. I wish school had been as interesting and as educational as the content you put together on a regular basis. The other night, for example, Jeffrey Gurian, Ladies Night, RFK, Meatless Fridays. In addition to learning things, I'm often grateful to hear a voice that, like mine and my husband's, does not conform to the rigid left-right categories. I wish people asked more questions as you do or waited to investigate matters before having an opinion. Well, I appreciate that, Christine. And um, she writes, the other day I asked a smart young person who graduated from an Ivy League college what she thought of RFK. Here is her response verbatim and its entirety. That nut job? There was no discussion. Later, I said to my husband, so much for learning critical thinking in a prestigious university. But he made the point that the college, in her case, had succeeded. It had indoctrinated her to a certain way of thinking. Well, phew, what are we to do? Meantime, I'm enjoying your show, and I'm grateful for it. Always, Christine. You know, I love this email. It really made my day yesterday. And I'll tell you, this left versus right, root for your team and go against the other guys, it's a joke. It is an absolute joke. It is professional wrestling designed to divide people and keep them from working together. Got a nice email here from Lisa. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, Hi, thank you so much, Frank. Thank you again for all the knowledge and information your show provides and teaches every single listener out there. No other show does what you do content-wise, and you're consistent and honest, and give the best of what you have inside of you to this show. It shows your true dedication to making it a great experience, and the haters mean that you are getting more popular. Great job. Kudos to you. Um, and hey, we've been in the studio and did a radio mix. So this is Lisa Pure, who's a, a musician, and she goes on about her new song, Almost being ready. Tom writes, hi, Frank. As you pointed out this evening, judicial activism is alive and well, whether it be radical or reactionary. And I, for one, agree with those that say Roe versus Wade was a travesty to any semblance of jurisprudence allowed to be the law of the land by default. A convenient relinquishment of the legislature's responsibilities given that congresspersons could avoid the temerity required to reveal their honest views on abortion, the third rail of American politics. What a convenient use of the judiciary branch as the scapegoat with little need to risk re-election by sponsoring, and goes on and on. So uh, he goes on about the Supreme Court. Um, Michael writes to me on the subject of Twitter users. I am presently not able to read your tweets on account of my choosing not to have a Twitter account of my own. I really don't see the overall benefit for the recently enacted restrictions. Feel free to pass this note on. Some Twitter accounts are of interest. Overall, I don't prefer the Twitter format of limited words per tweet. I'm my own way of communicating in cyber, or I have my own way of communicating in cyber. You know, I get what this guy is saying. Um... I don't like those new restrictions either, but it's not my company. Joan writes, on the subject of gas prices, your evaluation and comments on gas prices are so far off, it's infuriating. In protecting Biden, you state, in protecting Biden, in protecting Biden, you state that it was because of COVID that gas prices rose. No, I said the exact opposite. It was because of the lockdowns they went down. Wrong, he writes. 
Uh, on day one of Biden's administration, he closed down all of Trump's initiatives regarding this country's energy independence by stating that this should not be an issue in the election is also disappointing. Of course it should be an issue. It's the result of Biden's incompetence has caused much of the inflation problems, etc., etc. As a longtime listener, I'm becoming more and more disappointed in your positions on many issues without your seeming lack of understanding or caring to understand the underlying realities. If you're a Biden supporter or a Kennedy supporter, just say so and stop pretending that you are treating each party equally. Thank you. I never said I was treating each party equally. Um, Adam writes, I wanted to ask for your letter segment on Tuesday that if you had to move to the city of any of your affiliates besides New York City and AC, which one would you prefer? Ooh, this is a good one. If you choose another inside of the states of New York or New Jersey, what would you, your second choice be outside of those states? If you choose one inside of the Eastern time zone, which affiliate in a different time zone would you choose as your second or third choice? You know, I'd want to think about this one a little bit. I would think maybe Nevada. I haven't spent much time. I've never been to Memphis. Never been to Nashville. I've never been to Alaska. I have been to Baltimore, but I was only there for a day, and it was uh, 30 years ago. So I would like to uh, do a market visit to all these places, but if I have to pick one other than New York or New Jersey, I'm picking uh, Nevada, I think. Uh, but I haven't spent much time elsewhere. All right. Um, not going to have much time. Hopefully we'll get to it on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. this song to live on on our show uh one last piece of mail that uh, strikes me as apropos to read uh, it's one from one of our favorite and most devoted listeners ellen who writes a question about the mail segment hi frank something you've been driving me crazy since you just started doing this part of the show what are the words to the close of the mail segment i've listened and listened and have even slowed it down i still can't make it out make out the words well so people understand what she's talking about let's hear that again What does that sound like to you, Kenneth? Another letter from our listeners. Yeah, or something like that. Okay, so I can't it, make out that again. last one. Another letter from our listeners. It sounds to me like another letter from a listener's day. That's what it sounds like. Now, let's slow it down a little bit uh, so we can see if there's a better shot that we can figure it out here. What do you think? I think that's what it is. I think it's... it's I don't know, but I think... 
it's another letter from a listener's day. All right, without further ado. The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Benny! Yes, how you doing? Who's the guy that just picked up the phone? He sounds like a clown. Happy 4th, everybody. And you're a Mama Luke. That's what you are, kid. A Mama Luke. David! Hello? Hello? E. Frank! Yeah, happy 4th of July, 2023. You know, President Trump says that he's a patriot uh, and he's running for president again. Well, he made a mistake by listening to the people moving the capital of Israel to uh, Jerusalem. Neil. Fred. Good morning, Frank. I wonder how Chubsy Ubsy would do in a hot dog eating contest. We want the flurry dories. We want the flurry dories. And finally, Rusty. Yeah, how come you keep uh, you make yourself look bad defending shit all the time? All right, Rusty, we're going to have to end it there. Happy Independence Day. Frank Morano, good day.